everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste, ah, you know the rest. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. I don't have a really cool nickname. You can call me what you like. Uh, I did like that you said, we're good taste and bad taste. Ah! <laughs> that was going to be your whole intro. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, we do movie reviews here. Mm. And this week, we're doing them more. We, to we, have. we do a lot of a uh, lot of lot of film reviews. As yeah. It turns out um, when you don't have to drive to Hollywood mm. b- from the west side of L.A. and and rush hour and traffic. rush hour traffic to make it to a screening that starts at seven p.m. Mm-hmm. You can see more movies. Yeah, it's a little easier in some to, respects to elucidate to other parts of the nation. That's about a one hour and twenty minute drive each way. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's like 11 miles. <laughs> I know, it's ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, we're going to be reviewing the new releases on streaming. Uh, Sergio. Not based on the cat that is what? in the room with us right I now. I watched this movie for nothing? No. I, I assumed it was a cat movie based on our cat, No, Sergio. it's about a very famous diplomat, not um, the actual cat. Unless your cat is also a diplomat. He's famous. Uh, we're going to be watching uh, Sela and the Spades, Rising High, Endings, Beginnings? Endings, Beginnings. That's right. Endings, 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 comma, beginnings. Nice. That's the title. Okay. I, and, I, uh, I appreciate punctuation in my film titles. Okay. And uh, on the weekly streaming club, where we catch up on movies that one or both of us haven't seen, we're going to be talking about the kung fu classic Fist of Fury. But before we get into any of that, we do have to talk about a very sad, hmm. very sad story, but... Uh, an opportunity to talk about an acting legend who, frankly, I don't think got enough credit even when he was alive. The late, great Brian Dennehy. He passed away earlier this week. Uh, he, uh, 81, passed away, and we took Brian Dennehy for granted. Just in yeah, general. I'm going to say, just in general, throughout his career. And he, he started acting in the 70s. He was in probably at least a dozen films you've seen, kind of by accident. Yeah. Uh, he was always, like... Turn on cable, wait three hours, you'll see Brian Dennehy, no matter like, what's going on. <laughs> like, you might remember um, him from Cocoon, mm-hmm. uh, Presumed Innocent, Silverado, you, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo yeah. and Juliet, Corky Park. I think his first, like, big role was probably First Blood. Uh, uh, that's the first one where I remember, I mean, he, like, he was in 10, but he was a bartender. Yeah, like, I don't remember how big that role he had, he had a role in, in Semi-Tough, mm. you know, the, these films that, you know, if you're a 70s film aficionado, you would have seen, but, yeah. uh, the, the film that people are still watching and still sort of citing his performance in is First Blood, where he played the horrible cop who essentially made John Rambo, like, pushed John Rambo yeah. over the edge. Yeah, John Rambo had come home from Vietnam. Uh, he had been through a lot, but he was keeping his shit together. And then Brian Dennehy didn't like the way John Rambo sassed him, so he basically brutalized John Rambo until he got triggered and went on a massive killing spree. Uh, it's all Brian Dennehy's fault. Like, the entire... Um, everyone who died in all of the Rambo movies, specifically yeah. Brian Dennehy's fault. Uh, he was... It, I won't, I'm not going to call him chameleonic. He played all kinds of different roles, but he always looked like Brian Dennehy. Yeah. Uh, just, he, he had a good sort of sparkle to his eye when he was playing a comedy, but he had a, a real sort of hardness. He could turn that on when he was playing sort of a serious role. Yeah. But it was rare that he had got a leading role, so he was always there to sort of prop up a film. And boy, howdy, was that one of his great talents. Um, mm. One of my favorite uh, leading roles he actually had 
You know what I'm going to say. I do know what you're going to say. Is FX2. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to say FX1. Well, FX1, he was a supporting player. He was the cop. Eh, and it, it wasn't was until FX2 where he and Brian Brown ended up teaming up. Um, the FX movies, we talked about them a lot because they're underrated and they're very, very good. It's about uh, Brian Brown plays a, spe- a special effects technician for movies. Uh, he is fr- framed for a murder mm-hmm. and has to use his special effects making skills to track down the real murderer. Yeah. Uh, FX2, way broader, a lot sillier. It's got, like, the remote control clown and stuff, and it's about stolen golden coins from the Vatican, and it's a, it's a lot more ridiculous. But Brian Denny, he is now, like, his partner in that one. Yeah. And, good golly, he has chemistry with everyone. He's wonderful. Yeah. He's a wonderful, wonderful actor. Uh, I loved him in FX and FX2. Uh, you might remember him uh, as the dad from Tommy Boy, mm-hmm. uh, where it's actually an interesting role because he has to be big and bright and friendly and seem like the kind of person Chris Farley could grow into if he like lived a little harder and learned some wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, that's <laughs> the kind of thing. Like, it's easy to like play the dad of like a goofball role as like a stern, like I don't mm-hmm. like you, son. Like he loved. Oh. His son very very much. You have a lot of affection for Big Tom Callahan mm. in Tommy Boy. Tommy Boy holds up pretty good. There's <laughs> a lot it's of love been, in that movie. It's been a while since I've seen it, but There's I, a did, lot of I, love did, in that I movie. do remember yeah. it well. Um, it's, but it's, yeah, he also played a stern father in Romeo plus Juliet. He played Montague. Yeah. Um, he, he was first seen in the back of a limo, and he said, "Give me my longsword, ho!" and the longsword's a shotgun, and that's the Baz Luhrmann movie. Do you get it? Kind of hate that movie, but but he's I doing know. Shakespeare for goodness' sake. So good on him. Uh, his his one of his last roles. It's only got a couple mm. uh, left in the can, but I was fortunate to see one uh, for a film festival last year, and it's finally scheduled to come out this year. Mm. Is a really wonderful drama called Driveways, mm. in which he plays an old man who uh, lives next door to a woman who was a hoarder. And when she died, her sister comes in with her uh, young son to clear out the house, and they find out uh, it's a huge job, and they're going to be there for a long time. Mm -hmm. And he ends up kind of babysitting the kid a lot, whether, like, the mom, like, Mm -hmm. you know, she just has no other choice. And it's just, it's, it's really tender, it's really sweet. Uh, there's a lot of depth to it, even though it's kind of a quiet film. It's funny, it's sad. It is... The kind of performance that I was just like, God, I hope they give him an Oscar push for it because he's really incredible in that movie and it would be really, really nice if the Academy could recognize him. That would be cool, but of course yeah. we'll see how the year pans out. Um, but yeah, when you when Driveways comes out, you will see one, at least one last great, truly four-star Great movie performance from Brian Dennehy, and I do hope you check it out. Uh, The role that he got the most, like, awards and acclaim for is actually a film I haven't seen. Oh, what's that? And it was Peter Greenaway's Belly of an Architect. Oh, I haven't seen that. uh, Yeah, where he plays the architect. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're not familiar with Peter Greenaway, his films are very strange. Uh, He did The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. He did A Zed and Two Knots. Mm -hmm. Uh, He did a a four-hour fake documentary called The Falls about... A, a mental condition that doesn't exist and it's so common that he had to narrow down the people who had it so he just went to the people whose last names end with F-A-L-L <laughs> it's, it, that's Peter Greenaway's imagination that's very for silly. it um, but uh, that was one of his rare leading roles and now and I, I wish we didn't have to wait for a great actor or actress's passing 
to get to their better known works or to celebrate what they're better known for. I feel like we should and be I doing that before a, they die. Yeah, I feel a little ashamed that I never got around to Belly of an Architect. And right. now now that the great Brian Denny has passed, I'm an irresponsible critic. Well, I, the thing is, I had heard of, like he did a lot of his best work on Broadway. Mm. Um, and uh, he re- received great renown for his performance in Death of a Salesman. And at the time, it was considered... I would make uh, a great Willie Loman. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah I, think he, I think he won a Tony. Um, but uh, he was considered like kind of um, unusual casting for the role because Willie Loman's kind of usually portrayed as mm. kind of a shrinking violet. And Brian Dennehy is a big burly man mm. who fills up a room. But oh, yeah. he, he made the part his own, yeah. Uh, um, he did one. He won. Uh, he won a Tony for that. He also won a Tony for uh, Long Day's Journey into Night. Yeah, uh, like in the two thousands. So yeah, he he was earning Tonys. Yeah, left he, and right. He won, well, left and right. He won two. Well, but yeah, left and right. Uh, it's two more than me. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's two more than a lot of people. Um, yeah, he. You know, now that we can sort of look back over his career, we can sort of appreciate. How wonderfully broad his range was. Mm. Uh, we. This is why I say we took him for granted. When he was showed up, we always knew we were going to get something good. And there's like, yeah, you did your job, good job, Brian Dennehy. But look at all these other actors that we're going to give awards to. Brian Dennehy should have been getting a lot more attention a lot all I, that time. I, have you noticed that like the Academy is like giving more awards to character actors lately? Like they they gave one to um, Wes Studi. Yeah, that was year. really cool. Um, you know, like I, I it's just someone when, else who gets frequently yeah. overlooked, even though he's always amazing. I remember when Richard Jenkins got an Academy Award nomination. Yeah, hats are making noise back there, uh, and, and how all of the all of the articles and all of the think pieces and all of the speeches at the Academy Awards were about how this type of reliable character actor who's in a hundred movies and doesn't get any kind of credit are really the most important players in Hollywood. Yeah. The, the ones you can always rely on. Yeah, and they're, they're again, they, they rarely get the spotlight, mm. but whenever we shine a spotlight on them, we find that they are more than mm. capable and typically mm. have had careers full of memorable performances. Mm. Yeah, and Brian Dan, he is mm. just a textbook example. He's yeah. just one of the greats. Uh, Patton Oswalt has a great bit about great meeting Brian, Brian Dennehy, where he, he got to go to the premiere of some big Hollywood like Batman picture. Begins memory like, serves. Okay, yeah and, yeah, and he says that... Um, he goes to the after party and everybody's looking there. They all have like expensive gowns and their makeup and hair is done and they all look like a million bucks and they're all thin and fit. And he also said there's this great big buffet full of really expensive food that no one's touching because that's the way they stay thin and fit. And of course, he doesn't care. He's just going to eat. Yeah, he's feeling and a little guilty it's, about yeah, it. Yeah, because nobody else is doing it. And you know, he's always been sensitive about his weight. A lot of his, uh, his stand-up bits are about his weight. And uh, he says that he saw Brian Dennehy and he went up to Brian Dennehy and talked to Brian Dennehy and then he decided to sort of slink off to the buffet table and he's filling up his plate and feeling a little guilty about it. And then Brian Dennehy's hand just sort of landed on his shoulder and he evidently, Brian Dennehy just looked at Patton Oswalt and said, character actors, who gives a fuck if we're fat? And just, they both start eating and eating and... It was like this great big weight was lifted off of Brian Oswald's shoulder because Brian Denny was a big guy. Yeah, and he and he worked constantly yeah. throughout his whole career. You need actors of every type. Mm. It's a shame they don't always get the limelight, but they work. Mm. And Patton Oswald's working. Brian, he might get some of Brian Dennehy's old roles. <laughs> Can you imagine him in in Long Day's Journey in Tonight? Kinda. Yeah, yeah maybe. I, I could see him as a like a. A little bit more, no offense to Patton Oswalt, but he could play like a really good pathetic Willie Loman. Yeah. Like really self-pitying type. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because I've I've seen Patton Oswalt in a few dramatic roles. Do you see his film Big Fan? No, I didn't. See that. I heard that one's a, good. A pathetic character. In I heard that, that one's one. really good. Has a kind of a comic ending, even though it's a really intense movie, which is a little bizarre. But yeah, it's it, it's a pretty good one. Uh, Brian Dennehy will definitely be missed. Uh, we're going to realize we have a Brian Dennehy shaped hole in Hollywood <laughs> pretty quickly. It's like when John Polito or, or JT yeah. Walsh passes away. It's like we, we needed them. We needed yeah. one of those. So, yeah, if you haven't already, and frankly, even if you have, go seek out more Brian Dennehy movies. Again, Driveway is coming out soon. Uh, I highly recommend FX. Whitney highly recommends FX2. I recommend I, I think- parts of FX2. <laughs> I love FX2. <laughs> the Deadly Heart of Illusion. Okay, listen, it's one of the great subtitles ever. Yeah, I'll give you true. that. All right. Uh, but let's move on to some new releases. Um, it's hard to say what the big one is this week in streaming. Mm, I'm not sure if there really is a, a, a big one. Well, usually um, we start with the most like the most talked about movie yeah. of the week. Uh, but or, let's just or at jump least right the in. most advertised. And there doesn't in which seem case to be one of those. Well, yeah. and w- if we're talking about uh, the movie this week, that uh, the title this week that gets the most play, the most uh, talked about title, uh, it would be Sergio. <laughs> Get off the counter. That That's was the original title. Sergio, colon, get off the counter. <laughs> um, Sergio. Sergio is actually uh, a biopic uh, based on the life of Sergio DeMello, mm-hmm. uh, who was a really important person at the United Nations for many, many years. Yeah, he was a, a UN diplomat uh, who got a lot of renown for uh, doing diplomacy, UN diplomacy in Indonesia, mm-hmm. which they talk, talk about a lot, and we see scenes of it in this it's movie. quite a lot of the movie, actually. And, uh, and his death is particularly notable because he was going on a diplomatic mission in Iraq in 2003 mm-hmm. when he was in a hotel that was bombed. Yeah. And evidently, uh, his death was this long, protracted thing, which they fictionalize and dramatize in this movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the... He was essentially a, a martyr to the cause of diplomacy because it's a very dangerous job. And uh, because it's real life and not a movie, uh, his martyrdom didn't lead to the world changing and the United States pulling out of Iraq and closing Abu Ghraib. No, uh, no it actually met, led to the UN pulling out and a whole bunch of bad shit happening in the Middle East. Um, this movie was directed by I want to make sure I get the director's name right he is Greg, mostly Greg Barker Greg Barker he is mostly uh, a director of documentaries uh, he did films uh, like Manhunt The Search for Bin Laden mm-hmm. uh, The Final Year uh, he did a, a documentary about yeah, Sergio uh, indeed. also called Sergio and uh, f- the movie has that kind of documentary feel to it not necessarily in its style but in terms of just kind of wanting to tell you about this guy yeah. it doesn't really have a particular narrative we look at one of uh, the loves of his life he was uh, married had two kids but he was also married to his job and he didn't see them very often and they ended up having an affair uh, with a woman played by Anna de Armas uh, who most people know from, from Knives from Out, Out or, yeah. or Blade Runner 2049 um, and uh, that takes up about half the movie and the rest of it is him trying to basically bring about world peace wherever mm-hmm. he can and struggling to do so in a way that actually 
makes people happy because the people who desperately need a UN negotiator are typically working with people who are uh, at war yeah. at war with them you know like or like uh, America has invaded Iraq or uh, you've committed a genocide against mm. our people and we want you to acknowledge that and they're just like well fuck that mm. <laughs> we're not going to admit it we're just going to do it um, and on that level it is very informative I did not know a lot about Sergio de Mello. Mm. Uh, I actually, I really love um, the guy they got to play him, whose name escapes me for a moment, uh, uh, Wagner Mora, hmm. uh, who is a Brazilian actor, yeah. uh, which makes sense because uh, Sergio Demello was Brazilian. Mm. Uh, he has this like young Orson Welles bass well, voice. It is he's, smooth like chocolate. He doesn't. Th- this might be a weird comment, but he doesn't look the way he sounds. He actually yeah. has a very sort of youthful face. Mm-hmm. But yeah, his voice is very basso which, profundo. Which is why I brought up Orson Welles. Young mm-hmm. Orson Welles had that very I am Orson Welles, yeah, that you, kind of thing. But he was 24 yeah. <laughs> when, he was, when we first met him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this guy is older than that, but I'm unfamiliar with his work. Apparently, he's worked a lot in Brazilian films. He was in Killer Elite. He was on that show Narcos. Uh, I'm eager to see more of his stuff because this movie does two things right. Tells me a lot of stuff I didn't know about Sergio DeMello. And it introduces me uh, to Wagner Mora because I want to see more of this actor. It's a great showcase for him. He gets to really show off a lot of range. He's intensely charismatic. And if this movie gets noticed, I suspect there's a lot of people in Hollywood to be like, we got anything for this guy? Can we play, make him like a Bond villain or something? Because he's really cool. Or, or you know, the new Felix Leiter and the something. eventually rebooted. Yeah. Um, uh, all of those things are great. It's too bad the film sucks. Yeah, um, the, it really the does. The film is told out of chronological order to no effect. It's not like we're getting snippets of a certain theme in his life that cropped up from time to time. Yeah. Uh, it's just one of those narrative tricks that's trying to make it seem a little bit more interesting. So we're constantly cutting back to him dying into the rubble. Mm-hmm. We go back in time to when he's uh, doing diplomacy. and Theoretically, we should be dipl- seeing his life flash before his eyes, but uh, it all kind of just... Nothing feels tied in together. Yeah, nothing yeah, feels yeah. like something he would necessarily... So Some things he would probably think of as he was as he lay dying, which is, of course, very, very sad. Well, but then there's tragic, also but, like things he wasn't there for. Yeah, so, yeah it's, it's weird stuff. And I don't necessarily and, know why uh, it's there. And it also really skims past uh, a lot of the details of what he's doing, which, if you're a diplomat, that's important. We need a greater geopolitical context even if I, if just for like ignorant Americans who are watching it, yeah, we I think we would need to have a little bit more briefing as to where he's going, what he's doing, and what the actual goal is. Which we have a few scenes of, yeah. but they're uh, frustratingly few. It feels like the stuff that should be the a plot, mm. either what he's going through, trying to raise awareness of Americans, of America's sort of abuse of power mm. uh, in the Middle East just before the bombing. Uh, or his work in Indonesia trying to unite a country and create a new sovereign nation. Uh, either one of those should be the plot. Either one of those is the story mm-hmm. that you tell because it's an important thing he did. It was really difficult. One ended in victory, one ended in tragedy. You could even do like a, a two-act structure with that. Yeah, that would yeah, also yeah. have worked. That, that That's um, what Soderbergh's J was all about. There you go. But... Because it's all just chopped up and just sort of scrambled around like Scrabble tiles, uh, the movie feels incredibly unfocused. It feels like we didn't have a story to tell 
about Sergio DeMello. It doesn't feel like we have an important theme to explore mm-hmm. about Sergio DeMello. It feels like everyone involved in this movie respected the shit out of him so the- and wanted to honor him with the film. And I think they do a good job of that. Problem is, the movie isn't good enough to do anything more than make you think, well, he must have been cool. Yeah, and well, and it, it that's not enough. <laughs> well, and the film also doesn't really give us a good sense as to the enormity of what he did. Yeah, it doesn't really give us any kind of motivation as to why he believes in the things he believes. Yeah, and not, not that they I talk need, about stuff that, that I need. So like, cool. and I was raised this way. And, like, I don't. He need was an part a of a student see, insurrection in yeah, France yeah. when he was in high school. That sounds interesting. I could watch a whole movie about yeah, that. Remember the two popes, like, yeah. and, and that completely useless subplot about the young Pope Francis. Yeah. That's, that's a whole that's movie. What, that's what this movie needed. It was the the young Sergio. Yeah. Like a little bit more as to like his political background and mm. where he came from in terms of, you know, what shaped his beliefs and the kind yeah. of general geopolitical ethos they, that made him like pushed him into diplomacy and made him see that there's a way to bring these chinks together. Yeah, they've got all of these mm. pieces of his life and they don't seem to know which ones are important or if they are important how to dramatize them and make them suspenseful, interesting, seem important. Have gravitas. Mm. Uh, the only thing about this movie that has genuine gravitas is Wagner Mora, mm. who I think is really, really great in the role. Anna de Armas is good in this, but frankly, it's a really thankless role. She plays a woman who is very intelligent. She gave up a job on Wall Street in order to do mm. humanitarian work. And where's He's, that? Where's that part of the movie? Right, that yeah, also seriously. sounds interesting. But she seems she's very interested in her. They have some good chemistry together, but basically, it's just a will they or won't they. We already know they will. We saw them together in Iraq. So that means nothing. So, yeah, when, when they finally get to sort of like all the passion finally breaks open and there's this big you know, sex n- naked body sex yeah. scene. It's like we we knew that happened. Seeing it now is just a formality. And I think this whole movie feels like a formality. Yeah, it's a good way we're, we're, it. we're just sort of going through this uh, in a, the most perfunctory possible way yeah. and messing with the chronology only to only to force it into something more cinematic than it is. That's how I feel about um, 21 Grams, a movie that is just... I didn't see 21 Grams. I've heard nothing but bad things. It's it's just maudlin Mm. and depressing and full of twists that are only there to make you feel bad. And it's only, like, scrambled in time Mm -hmm. to just try to hit you with a few extra gut punches it doesn't actually help the story at all and it turns out they were dead from the beginning yeah, not like thing, not quite right? that bad but yeah kind mm-hmm. of like and it's just really just doesn't help a damn thing mm-hmm. and so and so Sergio was unfortunate because it's, it's it, my cat is great <laughs> what a wonderful mm-hmm. wonderful gray cat he is he's so handsome and and debonair and clever and I love him the movie, not so much. It's, uh, it's a bit of a shame. I look forward no, to Luca, no, no. Luca which, which would, of course, be a spin-off film about Luca Brasi. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say Luca Guadagnino. It makes no, sense. everyone thinks the cat is named after uh, Luca Guadagnino, and the cat's actually named after Luca Canali. From, I thought it was uh, Luca Bercovici. No, yeah. I, I, that's me. I, in right. my head, he's a little bit named after Luca Bercovici, mm. uh, who uh, is an actor. He was in Drop Zone, which we reviewed a while ago. Uh, but he also directed Rocky, which I love. But no, he's actually named after Luca Canali. Okay. Luca Canali is the main character in this amazing Italian crime movie you absolutely have to see. Uh, and uh, yeah, he plays a guy. He's like a low-level uh, pimp and drug dealer in the Italian mafia. 
And uh, some guys are stealing from the mafia, and they frame that guy for it. So now everyone in the mafia wants him dead, and he's just a schlubby, normal guy. He doesn't, like, he's a criminal, but he's not a wicked criminal. He's actually very nice. So he's just on the run from everyone in the goddamn world, and the only thing on his side is his forehead is very thick. So there's whole seconds, sequences of this film where he's, like, hanging from a car and, like, hitting his head on the glass of a car <laughs> because that's the only move he's got. Absolutely phenomenal, fun, cool movie. Um, you gotta check it out. Anyway, uh, but yeah, Sergio, not so much. Yeah, just look look up Sergio DeMello and yeah. read about him and read about what he did. And what an interesting the film you're was, the film yeah. you're putting in your head while you're reading about this guy's life. Way more interesting than this thing on Netflix. Yeah, real real shame mm. is uh, is what it is. Well, uh, tell me about mm-hmm. uh, a film. Um, you know, we talked about uh, uh, sort of. You know the everything, the the beginnings and the endings of Sergio DeMello's life. Mm. Tell me about um, the endings, beginnings. <laughs> you really had to bend over backward for that one. I look. Uh, I work hard on these segues, but sometimes I work harder than others. <laughs> uh, endings, beginnings. Which you saw and I didn't. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Drake Deramus film. Now, if you don't know Drake Deramus, he was. Uh, one of the filmmakers who came up in the mumblecore movement right as it was dying. Uh, <laughs> Which is about a year and a half after it was born. Yeah, the mumblecore movement was this little flash in the pan in the early to mid-2000s where yeah. uh, these zero-budget films and called mumblecore because the characters mumbled a lot. Well, because was, they're very took, talky. They're, listen, it's ultra-low budget. They're it's, very talky. A lot of it's yeah. really it's improvised, so mm-hmm. a lot of the dialogue feels really sort of like deliberately awkward. Yeah, and yeah, the people sort of mumble. They stare at their shoes, and they tended to deal with kind of the the relationships and romantics romantic comings and goings of uh, people in their late twenties. Um, I've uh, seen some mumblecore movies. Mm-hmm. I have also not seen others. Uh, I've seen a couple of Drake Duranis films. Uh, his movie Douchebag. Which is about a guy who is a douchebag. Which is the only one I've seen. I, and, I gotta be honest. And I actually uh, like that one because it's a movie where they actually acknowledge just how bad a person the protagonist yeah. is. And I found some mumblecore movies are hesitant to do that. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. also did a movie called Like Crazy, which I know some people absolutely love. It stars um, Anton Yelchin and Felicity Jones mm-hmm. and uh, Jennifer Lawrence. And um, Anton Yelchin is in love with Felicity Jones, who is in America, and her green card expires. And rather than renew it or go home, they just decide to, you know, stay, take their yeah. chances. And uh, she ends up getting uh, uh, booted out of the country, and it destroys their relationship. Yeah. That's basically it. Right. Anton Yelchin and Felicity Jones are really, really good in it, but I'm not on board with All it. Right. Because it's one of those things where your solution to your problem was right there. Mm. I don't know, don't know why <laughs> You did that, um, but uh, yeah. it, it's okay. But I'm not in love with it. I'm was, not a huge Drake Dramas fan. I was looking right in front of me, and you were right there, right in front of me mm. this whole time, right there, in front of me. Yeah, I, um, are, are you familiar with the short-lived Mumble Gore movement, where they those guys started making horror movies? Uh, I remember the Lazarus Effect. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> Just, not actually a Mumble Gore movie. No, but it was it was made by uh, uh, one of the Duplass brothers. No, was, it was like produced by it though. The Lazarus Effect hmm. was actually directed by the guy who did Hero. Uh, oh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Yeah. Um, no, so no, yeah, but the, the Duplass the guy, brothers the guy, have done some horror. Yeah, the, the guy who directed Jiro Dreams of Sushi got together Donald Glover, Olivia Wilde, and one of the Duplass brothers. And made this like really shitty horror movie. You may remember uh, a lot of the VHS segments were uh-huh. mumble gore, like Joe Swanberg. 
okay, uh, did this yeah, segment. Yeah. It's actually a really good segment called The Sick Thing That Happened to Emily When She Was Younger. It's the one that happens entirely over Skype, so it's actually not on VHS, so that kind of breaks the rules. Mm-hmm. But it's actually really scary. Yeah. I'll give him that. Joe Swanberg has done some movies that I like. His movie mm-hmm. Drinking Buddies uh, with, um, with Olivia Wilde. Olivia Wilde, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one's actually quite good. That's Drink, like a legitimately good, good, good movie. It's a good movie. Um, yeah. This one isn't. Uh, ah. if, if, um, if one of those really obnoxious, inspirational, quote, Instagram accounts was a movie, it would be Endings Beginnings. Uh, Shailene Woodley plays a young woman who's in her early 30s. She's just divorced. She's off of her starter marriage just because it wasn't working out and they didn't want the same things. And she tries moving back in with her mom, played by Kira Sedgwick. Okay. And she immediately finds herself uh, carrying on uh, two simultaneously. Two simultaneous new love affairs, uh, one with sort of a dark, um, a little bit more mysterious physical guy, and one a little bit more softer and more emotional. They're played by Jamie Dornan and Sebastian Stan. Who cares which is which? Uh, uh, I actually care. Wait a minute. Does Jamie Dornan play uh, the the creepy guy? I I think he plays Leah, like the the sadder, more aggressive. Guy. Okay, run. <laughs> run if Jamie Dornan's playing the creepy guy it's not a good relationship you run whether it's whether it's 50 shades of gray or the but fall I, you run i could be mixing them up because they both have identical beards and they both <laughs> like they're both sort of talking really low a lot of the dialogue is improvised uh everything is just so saccharine mm. in this movie uh and uh, Maybe not saccharine. Maybe not. Maybe not like sweet and treacly. Just sort of thuddingly, obviously melodramatic. Mm. Uh, all of the moments are just sort of wrung for their most obvious emotions. There's no nuance here. I'm not exactly sure what the Shailene Woodley character is supposed to be learning through all of this. She's just sort of going through some dramatic shit right now. The twenties, man. That's how I feel about a lot of mumblecore, man. Yeah. Our, twi- but, our 20s. But these characters are in their 30s. Well, then who cares anymore? <laughs> it's not cute anymore. I feel like Shaylee. Is Shaylee one in her 30s? She's, she, 20, she, uh, she's 28. She, oh, she's oh, 28. So she's okay. She, she's playing somebody Everything in her 30s. She's, she's playing yeah. somebody in her 30s? Yeah. Damn it. Then there's no excuse. And yeah, so she's she's discovering that she has sexual chemistry again, and she's discovering that she can love again. But this doesn't come about to any kind of meaningful catharsis. Mm. It's just sort of let's. I feel like the film is improvised, like the story is being improvised, and they didn't really have a way to conclude it. So they concluded it with uh, a really uh, horrendously obnoxious, like inspirational phrase. Where uh, Shailene Woodley is sort of... It's just like, hang in there, baby. And Shailene Woodley's hanging from a branch. There's a lot of solar flare and a close-up of a portion of her face. And there's some dreamy music Mm -hmm. playing. And she says, you know what? Not everyone's okay. And that's okay. And that's what we're going to go out on. That's... That's not really worth making a movie about. No. That's what it doesn't sound like anyway. No, no, no. And Shailene, I like Shailene Woodley a lot. She's a really daring actress. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan. Um, it's, it, it's a little disturbing how many times I've seen her lose her virginity. Uh, like, she was playing that role for a while. Yeah. So I think I saw her lose her virginity four times in the course of two years. Jesus. Because uh, she was in... Um, uh, the the um, the spectacular now spectacular now that's when I uh, saw White Bird in a Blizzard the Gregor Aki film that nobody saw uh, a couple others um, uh, yeah 
but yeah, she she's just really good at capturing something really sort of human and humane about all of the characters she plays. Uh, even if she is in sort of a, a big, broad melodrama. Remember Adrift? No, of course you don't. Nobody does. Uh, <laughs> But she was fine in that movie. Yeah, she's where she, yeah, she had this good sort of plucky survivalism in that movie. You may recall that she um, was uh, uh, adrift in that movie. It literally at, at yeah, sea, at, at sea in a boat. <laughs> Neat, but also emotionally un, unmoored. Mm-hmm. Compared to adrift, endings, beginnings is forgettable, mm. which is saying something because nobody remembers adrift. Yeah, I actually gave adrift a positive review, and I every time it comes up, I'm like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, that one yeah. <laughs> from like it wasn't badly two, made two at all, really. Ago. But like, yeah, yeah, it's just gone. It's just gone from your head. Yeah. I hope I forget endings, beginnings, because oh. it is bad. Ah, that's, yeah. that's too bad. Well, let's just move on. Yeah, let's move on to something really quite good. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on to Sella and the Spades. Uh, this one is actually actually we forgot to mention where this uh, first two movies Sergio was on Netflix and uh, endings beginnings endings beginnings is on Amazon Amazon also on Amazon is uh, Sella and the Spades uh, this movie uh, I really I, I dug most of this movie yeah, uh, actually Sella and the Spades uh, yeah wonderful film from first time director uh, her name is Tyresha Ty- Poe Tyresha Poe mm-hmm. and. It's essentially trying to strip the metaphor from a lot of the YA science fiction novels you remember reading, because <laughs> a lot of them take place in the future. Teens rule, the grown-ups drool, and, and they're uh, the divided are, into various houses. Yeah, of, houses are on... sects or classes, and they all have, they all have like color-coded symbols for each one. And uh, this one has that same sort of setup, but it's not future dystopia anymore. It's a high-end boarding school in the present day. Yeah, it's a high-end boarding school, mm-hmm. and the school is ostensibly run by the teachers, but not all the students know it's actually run by a series of like four or five clubs or gangs mm-hmm. that are in their school, and they have basically divvied up all of the uh, all illicit the vi- activity, all the vice in the school, all the yeah. vice in the school. So there are people who are in charge. So um, uh, there are people who are in charge of putting on parties. There are people mm-hmm. who are in charge of uh, all kinds of stuff. But the, the our protagonist Sella is in charge of the spades, and the spades are in charge of drugs. Yeah, they're in charge of keeping everybody and on the, drugs. It, it's it's this. It feels like a fantasy film because it it posits a universe where, in a like a scare film universe where the kids in a in in the student body have a really well structured and well run uh, racket in mm. order to conceal everything that their parents don't think they're getting away with. Yeah. So they're going to those parties, they're doing lines of coke, they're cheating, they're selling test answers, they are masters of everything evil that you suspect your kids might be up to. Yeah. But it doesn't really But the feel one that pa- way. the one parent we see in this movie who's played by the wonderful Gina Torres mm-hmm. uh, actually has a little bit of a Machiavellian speech to give to Sella, who's the main character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sella is. Let me look up the actress. She's played name. by Lovey Simone. Lovey Simone, who, who's, in, uh, who's in Greenleaf, and, and she's, uh, she's gonna, in the upcoming remake of The Craft. That's right. Uh, I think she's the lead in the upcoming. I think she's one plays of them. The Robin well, it's an ensemble, but but yeah, um, but yeah she's fantastic. Uh, she she plays again. She's in charge of drug running. She mm. is a senior. She's going off to college. And she doesn't have anyone to bequeath her 
her faction to. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have a, uh, like a, a, a protege. Mm-hmm. She did, and the story of what happened to her protege is really fucked up, and we find that out later. Uh, but eventually she gloms on to, uh, I think she's a sophomore, uh, she is played by pa- Celeste O'Connor. Yeah, Paloma is the character's name. And, um, yeah, she inducts her into this world of illicit vice. Even but Palo- Paloma is an innocent, though, so it's a little of a bit of an odd choice. Yeah, Paloma doesn't, we, we never really have a conversation with Paloma about how she feels about doing drugs or running drugs. I don't think she has an ethical problem with that. Mm -hmm. What she does have a problem with is all of the um, Machiavellian machinations, Mm -hmm. all of the uh, violence that Mm -hmm. Sela seems very casual with. Yeah. And she's very okay with just beating people up when the time calls for it. This is not a particularly violent movie. However, well, in fact, it's, it comes up. It's a really mellow film. I really mm. appreciate kind of how quiet and slow paced the movie is compared to uh, the, the film I want to compare it to is Cruel Intentions, a, a mm. movie that has this enormous uh, cult audience and a movie I kind of hate. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just. Uh, I, I enjoy it because it's so trashy, and I think it it kind of is aware of how trashy it is. But it's also trying to be really sensational when really it it kind of backs off when it it could go a little bit further. It's interesting because uh, I, I actually really really love the way that Tyree Chappelle mm-hmm. cr- sort of creates. Uh, this world. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a rich, uh, detailed world. Well, it's a rich, detailed world, but we actually only get very insular looks at it. Mm. Uh, we don't see a lot of classwork. We hardly ever see any teachers. The headmaster comes up a couple of times, but he's always just like a roadblock. Mm. And they just have to do something else to get around. Oh, prom is canceled. No, it's not. We'll throw our own prom. Yeah, right. Problem solved. Uh, but we see just how much... School becomes incidental, and class and this sort of black market economy becomes everyone's day-to-day business. Yeah. And that is something really, really fascinating, to see the way that what should be a coming-of-age story has become a story in which everyone who's already a senior is like reaching that point in a Goodfellas ripoff where all the mobsters are tired and want to die. Like they're just we we've I've been through a lot. I don't have a lot of compunctions about beating someone up with a baseball bat. But it, You're young, you'll get used to it. I and I I'd compare it to uh, Better Luck Tomorrow from yeah. the, the film from the early 2000s about high school kids who are they get such good grades that they can essentially get away with whatever crimes they want and of course that leads to death eventually, but mm. um that one has a very sort of tragic tone to it. And this one has a tragic tone, too. And especially by the end when everything sort of gets really a little bit overwrought, I think. But the tragic tone uh, is just more about moral decay than yeah, it is well, this, about something yeah, exactly. actually it's, tragic It's not about happening. a fall. This takes place in a universe where everybody has already fallen. And mm. I think that's a really fascinating parallel, parallel universe to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of notion of classism as well. Uh, the people who are in charge of these factions, yeah, they're in in charge. It's sort of cliquish. I appreciate that it's not the traditional high school cliques that we see in other movies. Yeah, the popular uh, yeah. kids, the nerds. We don't really do that. There's Look, the most like, we have is the theater kids. I, I went, like they have their own. Yeah, club, I, they have their own faction, but that's it. I, I've never related to any of. Those cliches that I would see in high school movies. Sure, I, they, I'm sure they existed, but not in my world. And yeah. 
But yeah, they run if, everything if they, like they would run a student council, you know? Yeah, like that's and, and, basically. Well, and, and presenting it as sort of not quite real. I mean, I'm actually able to buy it as more real. It, yeah. it feels a lot more emotionally true than something that would actually bank on cliched images that might actually be true. No, it's a very insular mm. world. And as a result, it's they it, you buy that it has sort of... It's like if you isolated like one species of animal and let it grow for generations and generations and, and then try to thing, it yeah. would evolve into its own thing. We've actually seen evolution happen like in like in, microcosm, te- in yeah. like test like cases. Like evolution is a thing. <laughs> We've just mm. seen it happen where like we took all these fish over here, they were the same species and then fish, you know, breed Start so fast into different species, they tur- and yeah. now they can't interbreed anymore. Mm. That's evolution. Boom, done. Um it, I, I just I really admire the way that we are dragged into this world with a real deft and almost unnaturally natural combination <laughs> of cinematic mm. elements of really sharp lighting, but also really uh, mm. sort of quiet, almost Terrence Malickian sort of found moments. Yeah. Uh, we have we have this sort of Wes Anderson quality of. Uh, symmetrical framing, people looking right at the camera, telling mm-hmm. us what's going on. These are all elements that feel like they should be disparate. They should be part of different movies. And uh, Tyree Chapeau just seems to use them interchangeably, like as though she just understands multiple languages of film and mm-hmm. she will switch off mid-sentence, but she understands how these things complement mm-hmm. each other. What a great-looking, excellently edited feature. My only problem with this movie is that all the things I like about it aren't the plot. (laughs) The plot isn't terrible, but the plot isn't interesting enough to Mm. hold the camera whenever the the camera stops to tell us more about, oh no, there's a rat in the school, and oh no, maybe Paloma's getting too big for her britches and might try stealing the club from... These are all moments that should be the Mm. big dramatic beats, and these are the moments that the movie seems bored with. Yeah, um... Tyree Chapeau clearly is more interested in the characters in the world. And there's really wonderful moments, especially between Sella and Paloma. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a really wonderful moment early on where they're they're sort of feeling each other out a little bit. And they're trying to figure out, like, where they stand. And we learn really early on that Sella is actually not interested in drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's not even interested, like, she's not ambitious. Uh, it's It's like... It's just sort of ambition is part of her blood. Mm-hmm. It's not that she has a plan to stay ambitious because it gets her something. That's just what she's naturally inclined toward. She actually just and, doesn't have a lot of interest in anything. She's not yeah, interested and, in and, romance and, or yeah, sex. Yeah, I was going to say. She's uh, asexual. Yeah, the, uh, the characters all strike me as being very asexual. Well, not the, all. The, There's the, a few that are two, genuinely dating, a couple that well, make I, out. I but. suppose so, but the, the, I'm glad that this is not a film that is trying to revel in teen vice. Mm. Like something like Cruel Intentions, which yeah. tries to make it really lurid. It's like, oh, let's have let's have two girls kiss. It's not even the worst thing ever uh, that they drink and do drugs. No, and and in fact, uh, when one of them does drugs, it's seen as this gr- grand failing. Um, the drugs and the vice and the sex seem very distant from what these characters are actually interested in, mm. which is just sort of keeping this power structure in place. It's it's not like gangsters in high school so much as Mm -hmm. it is this is kind of where gangsters the attitude of being a gangster starts and um, my biggest issue with is yes I think the plot is not very well told it's not very interesting Mm -hmm. and I also feel like it ends before the ending well it ends at a key like emotional beat Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, but, but that's nothing, kind of my point. Nothing concludes Nothing's been wrapped of, up. Yeah, nothing like, includes no, any kind of meaningful And not right? in this like really like you know sort of amazing like 400 blows kind of ambiguous well. That's life. Anything could happen next. It really does feel like we skipped a denouement. Yeah. That was just going to wrap there, it, there it's sh- like there should have been another scene or two to really just there are these movies complete something. There are these movies that uh, people sometimes point to and they say, "Oh, these movies they they should have ended earlier." Mm. They say something like, uh, "LA Confidential should have ended when Guy Pierce lifts up his badge," and I say, "No, because if you don't have Guy Pierce explaining what the fuck happened, mm. it's actually an impenetrable storyline, and you would be complaining that you couldn't <laughs> have followed it." Minority also, Report. Also, Bud, Bud White would have been dead. Yeah, there was the reveal that he yeah. had survived. A Minority Report. That's another one where everyone's just like, "It should end with Tom Cruise maybe changing his fate." Okay, if that's where it ended, everyone would be complaining about how that movie is nothing but plot holes. Mm. You need. The- <laughs> Some and things the, to conclude. The, yeah, the, the rest of the movie, which explains how the rest of the movie worked, because if Tom Cruise can change his fate, mm. nothing in that universe makes any sense whatsoever. That's really important, not just to the plot, but to the themes of the film. Mm. So you would be complaining that this was missing. And th- I'm doing this right here. This feels like a movie where maybe there was an ending and people were like, eh, you don't need it. And so we mm. ended it right here. It feels like there's something missing. Maybe not a lot. Yeah. I still recommend this movie. It's but very, it, it's very assured for a first-time director. Very yeah. strong, like it is very it has a very distinctive voice and storytelling style. The performances are really good. I love this moment where Lovey Simone is like looking at a picture. I think it's of herself and. She's looking in a mirror, and she's practicing smiling naturally. And every time she does it, she looks like she's about to eat you. <laughs> it's a really great little bit. Um, so it's full of really wonderful stuff. I highly recommend it. Uh, but it also feels like there's room for Tyresha Poe to grow and become uh, an even better storyteller. And I cannot wait to see what she does next. Yeah. Well, I, I, she either needs to work on just sort of a mood piece, mm. which would have been, which would be fine. Something like you know, I guess a Sofia Coppola film. Those are mm. like just mood pieces mostly. They're not really plot heavy. Yeah. Uh, or yeah, just sort of sharpen her storytelling skill. I would like. I like that she's in this middle ground. I just feel like the 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 chemistry is a teensy bit off. And if there was maybe a ten percent more focus on making sure the story popped. Mm-hmm. This would be like definitely on my list of the best films of the year. Yeah, but as yeah, it stands, yeah, it's just really. I mean, it might be. I suppose it's it's very early in the year. But as it stands, it is a really impressive very, directorial yeah, debut, very, and I very, highly recommend everyone check it out because Tyree Chabot is clearly someone to watch. I I bristle when somebody describes a film as interesting because that's kind of meaningless. But uh, it means if, more than boring. Uh, yeah, it's like the opposite of boring. So so what? Like it holds your interest. Um, I'm gonna but. Descri- but but I'm gonna describe <laughs> this film as interesting in that it is interesting. It's actually sort of uh, nuanced and complex and deals with a lot of different kind of textures and a lot of different moods and a lot of different uh, new notions that I don't see in films a lot. It is interesting, and uh, I, I hope that I, that doesn't sound like a, a hmm. poor recommendation. No, I think it's uh, I think it's a very good one. And then uh, our last uh, streaming film mm-hmm. uh, is Rising High, which I believe is on Netflix. It's on Netflix. And I didn't see this one either, so Whitney, tell us all about it. Uh, Rising High is um, a, sort of a con artist movie. Uh, it's a German film. Uh, it was directed by... I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. Kunait Kaya. Cool. And... The scheme at the center of this movie is so complicated, it takes half of the movie to explain it. <laughs> so uh, the main character is this young man uh, named Victor, who, or, or Victor, who 
is obsessed with not being impoverished. His parents okay. were sort of like lower middle class. He was always a little bit embarrassed by that. He understood that they early at an early age that they didn't have everything they possibly could. They're presented with a pearl necklace, which by a rich friend of theirs at a party when he's a boy. And he realizes that this is sort of a symbol of, you know, this rich guy, that's just something he can buy naturally. It's something he doesn't even think about where it's as to them, it's like way too generous. It's like Uh as much as they make in a year. And so he just suddenly became class conscious right in that moment and just uh, is determined to become wealthy as quickly as he possibly can. Uh And he comes up with a scheme that involves buying really shitty apartments, mm-hmm. fixing them up for as little as possible, mm-hmm. selling them to people uh, who are sort of looking for a nice expensive home in this in this posh area of town. Yeah. Then falling also falling in with the people who would give them mortgages, finding people who can't afford those mortgages, signing them over cheap mortgages, essentially creating their own housing bubble of buildings they own. And then reaping the benefits somehow. Uh, I am lost. Step three, question mark. Step four, profit. The point is he makes a lot of money. Yeah, I'm very confused right now, but okay. And I'm probably getting... And there's a lot of other details as well, because they also have to fall in with a lot of, like, Bulgarian workers to make sure they're... he's that smart, it seems like he probably could have gotten, like... Like an, less, actual, like an engineering degree or something. I mean, yeah, but like, listen, listen. I'm, I firmly understand that people are attracted to the line of work that they're interested in, regardless yeah. of how intelligent they are. So he might just want to be a con artist. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that might be his ambition. I, I, I love that these sort of shortcuts to being wealthy movies always depict these plots that are way more trouble and hard work than actually just going to school and getting a job. It feels like it feels like uh, high risk gambling. Yeah, Where, like listen, we could listen. It, we yeah. could go to the penny slots, and we could commit to that for thirty years, and then maybe we'd have enough to retire on. Or we can go to the roulette table and put everything on number six. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's listen. It's a big. It's a big risk. Mm-hmm. But if we win. <laughs> But in this case, he's built the roulette table, and he knows the croupier, and he's hired a third of the people to bet on certain numbers to give confidence to the other people betting on other numbers, and he's going to make some deals where he's going to trade chips mm-hmm. and bring them to other... Like, it's way too complicated. Uh, At this, this point, I kind of want to see a movie where someone does, like, a plot, a, uh, a con that complicated, mm-hmm. and then towards the end, with like, because, you know, like, any heist movie, any con mm-hmm. movie, something goes wrong. Yeah, which, which happens. Of course it movie, does. Yeah. I just want them to just be like, walk away. Like, you know what? Too complicated. I, I don't I understand this anymore. I don't care what happens to anyone here. Yeah. I am out. I am going to go get a I have job a suitcase full of $50,000 cash, and I don't know who it belongs to or I'm supposed to I'm carry so it. I'm so confused right now. You know what? I have all this cash. I'm just going to go to an apartment. I'm going to yeah. live there. I'm going to invest. <laughs> and, and if some bad guy. High yield mutual fund. And if some bad guy finds me to say, hey, you stole my money, I'm going to ask him to explain it to me because I forgot. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's and it's not in that sort of like sneaky kind of way like LA Confidential where you're mm-hmm. having a little trouble putting all the pieces together because they they don't seem to fit at first. Mm-hmm. You watch the movie a couple times and it does finally start to fall together eventually. Mm-hmm. It's not that kind of complicated. It's just way too complicated. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, and of course the story beats are familiar if you've seen this kind of like con movie. Or David somebody, Mamet, yeah, yeah. David Mamet, One Hundred Homes, anything where somebody's mm. pulling some uh, sort 99 of Ninety Nine Homes or Ninety Nine Homes, excuse me, yeah. uh, where somebody's trying try to pull some sort of scheme and how you, know, you know somebody gets too greedy, somebody gets a little too drunk, uh, you fall in with the wrong person, you fall into drugs. Uh, his Victor's compatriot. Uh, 
refuses to get married. He wants to get married. He ends up marrying and having a child, but he's also like drugs do get involved at some point. In fact, it, there's this really weird handshake that in order to prove that you're in on the scheme, you got to do a line of coke in front of each other. Yeah, because like, now I've seen you do something illicit. Yeah, I, I, guess I know that you're not like, an undercover cop who would do everything possible to avoid doing yeah, that. Yeah, so like they, they meet in this like little hovel that they're going to fix up, and they it's yeah. like, okay, let's get ready, and they got all this like plaster and putty and paint, and they're just going to redo this building. But then they put out a little card table, and they each do a line of coke, and then they proceed to start fixing things up. Maybe that's just so they can stay up Maybe that's doing more it. interesting. Maybe it's more fun to But then they go. The then they though. go to the bank. It's like for this mortgage person they're going to try to con. It's like, okay, and we can set everything up, and here's our scheme, and here's, here's your blackmail money, everything's set up. Oh, also, here's some Coke. And she leans forward and just does a line of Coke. It's well, like, what? It's business. I saw in movies in the 80s. Everyone did Coke. I guess. <laughs> remember remember Crocodile Dundee, where Crocodile Dundee was at a big posh party? Oh, he puts and the, the cocaine doing, in the boiling water yeah. and puts the rag over his But I remember when I was a kid, when I, I first time I saw it, I didn't understand anything about cocaine. I didn't know what was yeah. happening. Second or third time I saw it, I knew. And But what shocked me more than him being at a big posh party and some guy doing coke in the kitchen mm-hmm. was that the his like love interest in the movie, when he explains, said, it, to explains him, it to him, and he's just like, why do you do cocaine? Because it's fun. <laughs> like, she does coke. Everyone does coke. <laughs> well, why, why would you do that? Because it's Because it's fun. Yeah, because oh, it gives you a buzz. You have some? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm high right now. It's 1980s, it grows in your pockets. <laughs> you ever see, uh, you remember in the animated tick, they had that joke about the speed of lint? No. Okay, now, a lot of spaceships will go at the speed of light. Our spaceship is faster. It goes at the speed of lint. Uh, how does that work? You know when you take your clothes out of the dryer and there's already lint in the pockets? It's that fast! <laughs> <laughs> so bizarre. But yeah, there's all... They get involved uh, with bigger and bigger schemes. Everything starts to fall apart. Some people they can trust. Some people they can't. Yada, 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 yada. Uh, the, the beats are all sternly predictable. If you like this kind of movie... This is one of the more, more meaningless criticisms you get. If you like this kind of movie, it's the movie for you. Um, <laughs> Listen, some movies are made for uh, a certain audience. Yeah. And some movies, and what we say by that is they hit familiar beats. Yeah. They're comfort food. It's like a generic slasher from the 80s. I, and I've, if you uh, like slashers, you might like that movie. If you don't like slashers, there's nothing new to yeah, make you suddenly like them. I've, I've seen it happen before where... Uh, Something that has kind of been ground ground into the dirt in American cinema, like a cliche or a genre, will be done in a foreign language, like in France or in Europe or, or just anywhere in the world. And a lot of critics will start to sort of see it's fresh again. Mm-hmm. And that frustrates me because if they're just sort of doing the same thing, just it's in French, you're not actually doing anything new. I know, I hate and, that shit. And I, I suspect some criti- some audiences and some critics might see something like Rising High and say, oh, this is actually kind of new and innovative. Uh-huh. No, it's just in German. That's how uh, I feel about movies, <laughs> some movies that come out from A24. Where oh, yeah. it's just like, oh, it's so new and innovative. No, no it comes at night. It's just an A24 movie. And you're thinking it's new, even though it's something we've seen a hundred times before. But now it's like kind of highfalutin. I, so I, you think it's okay uh, to like it now, Whitney. I actually really like it comes at I, night. Um, because it's from A24 and you have uh, uh, bad taste in films. Yes, that that's exactly what I'm a critic. <laughs> bad taste in films. <laughs> Give me more of that, Cats. Um <laughs> I'm getting, of course, when he has great taste in films. We just disagree about that. We one. just disagree. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Well, no, and others. William's yeah. the wrong one in this case. Sure. But, uh, yeah, yeah. You can own that. It's okay. You can, you can say <sighs> so you're wrong. So can you if you wanted. 
Uh, but yeah, there, there's it, it's really kind of pat. It's totally efficient. It's uh, you know clear, good performances, as good as they need to be. No innovation. All right. Not necessarily a bad thing, but not innovative at all. Well, fair enough. Well, let's go through the critically acclaimed scale. Uh, we rate movies here at the critically acclaimed podcast on the critically acclaimed scale from C minus to C plus. Mm. That's it. There's no other options. C is an average movie. Not that bad, not that mm. good. C minus, below average. Not very good. Possibly the worst thing ever. Everything mm. negative is all in a C minus. And C plus is anything positive from we simply recommend it to it's the best movie we've ever seen in our lives. C plus. Uh, where do you uh, rate Rising High? Rising High is a C. Okay. Right in the middle. Textbook C. <laughs> yeah, textbook C. All Five right. out of ten. Uh, Sailor and the Spades. Uh, Sailor and the Spades is a C plus. Uh, it is yeah textured, uh, new, in- mm-hmm. interesting, and <laughs> uh, yeah, and features some really good, interesting character work and uh, a lot of. Uh, kind of stylistic flourishes I don't think I've seen in film before. So yeah, yeah. it's really exciting. I, I think I've seen it together, but I haven't seen it together told in this way. And I think mm. that makes it a C plus. It's not a particularly high C plus just because um, I, I do have some criticisms film, about yeah. the about the well the story is a bit shabby, mm. but uh, the actual execution is really excellent and I do hope everyone checks it out. Uh, definite C plus. Um, what it was uh, Shailene Woodley beginnings and, 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 and ending. endings comma beginnings ah. C minus uh, if, if I ruminate long enough and just you know take shots at gin and just start feeling mad, it might make my worst of the year list. Uh, if I remember it, yeah, that's a question, <laughs> isn't it? And then uh, finally, Sergio, uh, uh, the biopic about Sergio DeMello is an impassionate C minus. It's not mm-hmm. really terrible. It just doesn't really come together very well. It's got yeah. a good, strong leading performance, and I want to see more of him, but the movie itself just doesn't find its narrative very well. Yeah, the only thing I would be torn about is its subject matter, and you, you can do this with like documentary films as well. If they choose a really good subject, but they with it, and the filmmaking sucks, then you have mm-hmm. to say that's a bad film, even if the, the topic they chose was a wise topic to cover. Yeah, Sergio's an interesting person, uh, and you should know about him, and I think he maybe would have been uh, the subject of a good biopic, but this isn't it. I want to check out the documentary that the same director made. Yeah. Maybe it was just, maybe he just... If it's more just it's straight information, it might be more Maybe he did it all the fun. first time, and the second time just, you know, didn't click. Mm-hmm. You know? It's like when you cover your own song. You know? I, <laughs> I did it already. So yeah, I, I, I too, it's, yeah, not not it's not in the pits, but it is a C-. minus. All right, well, it is time for the last segment on our show. This is the critically acclaimed streaming club. This is where Whitney and I review movies, uh, usually big movies that one or both of us hadn't seen. Mm. Uh, And in this case, we decided to look at action movies on Tubi TV, T-U-B-I TV. It is a free streaming service that has really a lot of movies in it. Some new, mostly older stuff, cultier stuff. I I was thumbing through Tubi. Like, I I didn't have Tubi before Mm. this. I downloaded it. I, I started looking through their selection. They are kind of like a pretty good local video store yeah from like 1997 yeah where they'll have you know some new ones some old ones but pretty much a 
good hefty selection of kind of scattershot films. Yeah, just stuff you won't find at Blockbuster. Yeah, you yeah. know, just because they just don't have enough space. Mm. All the they they got all the copies here mm. at uh, uh, Tubi. Not, it is not it particularly is... well curated. It's no. not particularly well organized. No, but it is really not. You're, you're, <laughs> gonna, you're gonna stumble across. Oh, that's interesting. More often than you would on some of the other streaming services. Yeah, uh, it is free. There are commercials. However, I will give Tubi TV credit. Not a lot of commercials. I expected there to be commercials like every five, ten minutes. There's commercials like every 25 minutes. Yeah. And yeah. there's like three. And I, It's pretty and, good. And uh, I've noticed they're really good about not putting a commercial break right in the middle of a scene. At least they yeah. didn't for me. I'm not sure. No, I, did, I didn't say it either. TV, but yeah. I, I actually own Fist of Fury, but oh. I decided it would be disingenuous uh, not to watch it on the streaming service and get that experience. Mm. And uh, indeed, the streaming service only offers the dubbed version mm. of... Uh, the movie we're reviewing today, whereas I'm more familiar with the uh, original uh, subtitled version. Yeah. Uh, which actually isn't the original version. <sighs> Movies. Okay, here's the deal. We're doing uh, the, the Bruce Lee classic Fist of Fury. Uh, it was made in China, and uh, it was uh, made, as many films were at the time, in that uh, a region uh, without sound. So it was all dubbed after the mm-hmm. fact. Uh, so there is no original audio track. The original audio track that they recorded uh, was, um, I'm actually not sure if it was in uh, Mandarin or Cantonese, but um, but it was recorded by some of the original actors, and then when it was released in America, it was heavily dubbed. Um, so that's, that's the version that Tubi yeah. offers. Well, and, that, and that's the version that most Americans would be familiar with. This was the one that made it to sort of the grindhouse cinemas. And, and in uh, fact, it was actually the one that made it there... First, what happened was Bruce Lee was a young actor. He was teaching martial arts in Hollywood. He'd been in a few films as a kid uh, in China. He was on The Green Hornet, which was a sort of a... Mm. It, it, the character pre-existed, but the show that they put on in the 60s was trying to riff on the popularity of Batman the series. Well, it's made by the same people. Yeah, yeah, but like, oh, Batman's successful. What else have we got? We'll do The we'll Green do Hornet. This, we'll do a serious version of Batman. And uh, Bruce Lee, playing uh, the sidekick Kato, stole the entire show and yeah. so he was a bigger bigger star and he decided to go back to China and uh, he made two enormously successful movies The Big Boss and Fist of Fury made by the same director made by the same director made within like five months of each other mm. they worked they they had an assembly line back then it was really <laughs> just churning them out yeah. Big Boss was a huge success Fist of Fury made twice as much uh, in America Fist of Fury came out first mm. which is kind of confusing it also due to a mix up uh, was released under the title The Chinese Connection, and The Big Boss was originally released as Fists of Fury, oh, leading wow. to no end of confusion. Uh, <laughs> you gotta got love the uh, the rush-it-into-theaters ethos of 1970s yeah. Grindhouse. Uh, these movies uh, inspired uh, American filmmakers to start making more kung fu movies, and indeed uh, they decided to make Enter the Dragon, starring Bruce Lee and Jim Kelly, and John Saxon, who really isn't a martial artist... Like like you would expect to see in an action movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, these two films are really important in terms of kung fu cinema. Because before this wave of kung fu films, mm. uh, kung fu films typically tended to be more about legendary heroes. Great wise heroes mm. and larger than life but, uh, mythic op- figures operatic yeah, yeah. like touch of zen that yeah. kind of thing which, and, which is wuxia which you know technically a different thing technically but, yeah. a different thing a bit more magic oriented mm. but um yeah 
that's all well and good. But around the early 70s, uh, Chang Che and then uh, later Lo Wei, who directed Fist of Fury and The Big Boss, uh, mixed it up and started to make more contemporary movies, movies set in a more contemporary setting. Mm-hmm. Fist of Fury is set in the 1920s, but that's still more contemporary than most of the other films that have been made up until that point in that kung fu genre. Um, and uh, they decided to make films that were about more complicated heroes, anti-heroes in this case, uh, people who were dealing with issues of uh, class warfare and racism, and films that were generally angrier, which is why, or at least one of the big reasons why, films like Fist of Fury, Five Fingers of Death, Boxer from Shantung, these kinds of films started to get more popular in America because they were showing in a lot of the same grindhouse theaters that were showing black exploitation films like Shaft and Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song. Uh, and the stories of Chinese uh, heroes who were being oppressed by either white colonialists or uh, Japanese imperialists and then fighting back against that was a very close mirror to what was going on in a lot of black exploitation cinema. Mm. The other big thing that Fist of Fury did really, really differently was the fight choreography was unlike anything <laughs> that had been like shown in like America before. If you look at fight scenes before Fist of Fury came out, mm. they were not shot like this. Well, they were shot relatively of, boring. A, a lot. Uh, there's a lot more happening, and I'm not sure when it started uh, where they sped up the film. Mm. They, they would... Uh, Choreograph the fight scenes, and they would have people, you know, sort of throw throw their fists and throw their kicks, and you know, surround uh, one noble hero who just sort of beat everybody's asses. Mm. But then they would add like swooshing, punching sound effects, and yeah. they would also speed up the film, so it looks like they're going like one hundred and twenty percent their normal the, speed. The actual rule is, and I, I looked this up because I was really mm. fascinated by it. Um, what they discovered is if you shoot at 22 frames per second, oh, usually yeah. you shoot at 24. Mm. If you shoot at 22 frames per second, it still feels like it doesn't feel sped up, but it adds a little crispness. Yeah. Just a little, little extra kick okay. to the fight choreography. So they're actually still fighting pretty fast. Yeah. It's not like they're fighting slow and having it sped up afterwards, but it just looks a teensy bit more impressive. It has a teensy bit more energy behind it, and it looks mm. really, really sharp. But because, again, all of these actors are actually doing the martial arts, the choreographing the martial arts. Bruce Lee choreographed all of his own fight scenes. Um, the f- first big, big fight scene where Bruce Lee fights an entire karate dojo mm. uh, full of enemies is masterfully filmed. And the way that the camera starts craning upwards like in a Hollywood musical and like following his fist as though it was following him on a microphone breathtaking especially in context because if you look at any american fights like what happened was fight scenes were pretty fucking boring until about the time from russia with love came out and that big fight on the train between sean connery Mm. and uh uh was robert shaw Uh, i think so yeah um that's that was edited in a more punchy, more dynamic fashion that people were used to, and that changed the way fight scenes were done. But then, once this sort of Hong Kong choreography started taking hold, that started challenging people to get even stronger with it. Mm. The actual plot of Fist of Fury is actually really simple. It's a revenge story. It's a revenge story. Morally, it's a little complicated, but on the plot level, very, very simple. Bruce Lee returns home. Bruce Lee returns home because his master, his uh, uh, martial arts instructor, uh, has just died off camera. Of pneumonia, we learn. Yes. And he's very, very sad. And so, so sad he th- 
throws himself on the coffin as it's being covered. Now, this is actually really interesting because every other person uh, at that this that his instructor taught, who is still there, who's still working at the school, still training, still training others, is comp- is comporting themselves with absolute dignity and grace. Mm. Bruce Lee is young and emotional, and right from the beginning, he is making not only enormous faux pas, typically at a funeral, you don't jump on the coffin and start clawing mm. at it until someone hits you with a shovel, uh, with yeah. a shovel knocking you unconscious because it's so embarrassing. Uh, this is not something that was done. So he is basically putting himself up as this sort of James Dean type where he has uncontrollable emotions because he's so young and impetuous. Um, and then when he regains consciousness, uh, a bunch of uh, Japanese guys from the nearby karate dojo uh, show up with a new sign that they brought yeah, all you guys a, for your martial arts school. A, it says Sick Man of Asia. Isn't that funny? That's incredibly racist. Mm-hmm. Like, it's more racist than it even sounds if you know the actual history of it. So all of Bruce Lee's buddies are just like, okay, it's cool. It's cool. Let's, our, let's, let's not start our, a gang war. Our, our instructor would not want us to, yeah. to take the bait. They want us to fight. No. They're clearly less. They're clearly less uh, mature than we well, are. Luckily for action junkies, Bruce Lee's a dickhead and uh, <laughs> decides to go over to that dojo and pick a fight, which he wins handily, pretty much sparking off a big gang war. Uh, the other where he, yeah. he has to go into hiding uh, while the entire city hunts him down. Yeah. The other interesting thing about that early fight, in addition to. Uh, uh, first off, Bruce Lee uh, proving the superiority in, in his eyes. He's argued many times that Chinese boxing was superior to karate. Um, and it's in a lot of his movies. Way of the Dragon has this as well. Um, but in addition to proving the superiority of Chinese boxing, according to Bruce Lee, uh, it also introduces a weapon that was not popular in cinema until Bruce Lee got a handle of it. Uh, <laughs> this, this right here, this scene, mm. is probably most people's introduction to nunchucks. Now... That sounds insignificant. It really does, but, but it's not. <laughs> you, you and I, William, you and I, yeah, uh, we were kids when uh, the Ninja Turtles started. Mm-hmm. The Ninja Tur- We were kids when the Ninja Wave hit America. It was huge now, in the eighties. Um, ninjas I, were everything in the eighties. Uh, ninjas were, uh, and I've traced the origin. It was actually Golan Globus. It was Menachem yeah. Golan, Yoram Globus of the Canon Group, who decided that ninjas would make good film. And mm-hmm. lo, they made a bunch of these super low-budget ninja films mm-hmm. that leaked their way onto the early days of cable television, mm-hmm. and as such, kind of stained the minds of the young people who were watching it. What's interesting is that Golem Globus's ninja films, typically the ninja was the hero. American mm-hmm. Ninja, uh, Master Ninja wasn't them, but that's another mm-hmm. example. Teenage Ninja Turtles wasn't them either, but again, ninjas in America, well, by, by heroic. The, by the time we got to the Ninja Turtles, like ninjas were just sort of a... At, at first, a footnote, and then just sort of yeah. a, a gradually accepted part of mainstream ninjas, pop cinema. Ninjas aren't made a part of history. They're just not nearly as big as American pop culture made them out oh, to be. Oh, goodness, no. Yeah. And, and they had been in Chinese cinema, but because, again, there was this longstanding uh, animosity between uh, you know, China, Hong Kong, and Japan, uh, the ninjas were almost always the bad guys mm. in Chinese kung fu movies. So... It was weird, <laughs> this big transition. We're going to take the bad guys from all of these movies, and we're going to make them the hero in all of these Western movies. Uh, that's weird. It's an odd thing to take away from all that, but okay, you do you. And that's, that's how the big shift occurred. But yeah, Bruce Lee takes up this, this 
I mean, this practically esoteric weapon. It's two, it's two clubs connected by a chain, mm. and he's magic with that thing. <laughs> Not only can he do like a lot of the cool like twirls and and, and tricks, mm. unlike a lot of the movies where like people would use nunchucks afterwards. He understands it's just a club on a chain. Mm. All that really matters is that he can hit you on the head with it really fast. There's a scene where he just hits a guy in the head with it, and his head starts gushing blood, and you're just like, oh, right. That would kill you <laughs> if someone as strong and as fast as Bruce yeah, Lee no. did that. It's a dangerous weapon. It's a dangerous weapon that's... Uh, like, the curse was taken off of it a long time ago mm. uh, because of the Ninja Turtles. One of the Ninja Turtles just sort of swings that thing around and bonks people occasionally when he's not using salamis. Yeah. Uh, and... <laughs> I, were, were kids in your school like bringing ninja stars? And, oh yeah, and like th- they're bring, throwing throwing. I mean, not bl- not not the deadly weapons, but they had toy versions of it, and they oh, had well, they had like foam nunchucks and stuff like that. The, that well, was there a was thing. a time when like we live in Southern California, you could go to Tijuana and get the real thing. Well, you could go to a martial like, arts supply store and or, get the yeah, real or, thing. Or not that long supply. ago, I'm not sure. Maybe you still can, but yeah. you used to be. Able but to. yeah, there was a while there where people were bringing like real throwing blades and real nunchucks to schools, and there was like PS. <laughs> Essays on television telling kids, don't bring your ninja weapons to school. Uh, Nunchucks were considered so dangerous that in Europe they would actually remove scenes with nunchucks from movies. Well, just as out of hand. Also, they look so cool, and kids would have access to them, and they'd end up hurting each other. There was there was this whole spate of ninja inspired school violence. There's this amazing like 1986 or whenever it was. There's this amazing scene in in, in, uh, Way of the Dragon, which is the only movie that Bruce Lee like wrote and directed and starred in as well. Mm. Like he did all of it. And there's a scene where Bruce Lee beat up a bunch of guys with some nunchucks, and one of the bad guys gets a hold of the nunchucks, and he's just like, "Aha! Now I have the coolest weapon in the world." Bonk, down I go. <laughs> just hits himself in the head immediately and it's over. Because <laughs> they're actually really hard to use. One of my favorite nunchuck scenes in cinema history comes in Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Of course it One does. of the best movies ever made. <laughs> Golly, it's about spies who are all who are all played by Playboy Playmates. And uh, they're trying and, to... S- uh, and Penthouse Pets. And Penthouse Pets as well. Thank you. And they uh, and in, future in the, and future soap opera actors and yeah, like and, and, the star of Bold and the Beautiful for many many years is the lead actor in Hard Ticket to Hawaii. And, and there's a mutant snake, and there's <laughs> there's drug running, and they hide spy messages in like a local sexy radio call-in show. And they it's, shoot a sex doll with a rocket launcher in midair. It's for no reason at all. It's bloody amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. There's, there's a, a razor frisbee. Razor, there's a ra- yeah frisbee with razor blades in it. There's a uh, a torture bodybuilder woman. Yep. And there's a pair of nunchucks that one of our main characters hauls out. She holds like the two sticks next to each other, and a bad guy approaches, and she throws the whole thing <laughs> at the guy's head. There's no stunt work at all. It's like the most inelegant thing. It is one of the best it's, movies ever it's made. It's one of the best movies ever made. Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Seek out Hard Ticket to Hawaii. You will thank us so much. <laughs> by, made by Andy Sedaris. It is so, so it, good. What is it, the second or third in the, the series? It was it the was, second, in, it was, second in that series of movies. The first one was called Malibu Express. And there's like and there's 11 hard, of hard them. Hard Ticket to Hawaii, and there's 12 movies in that series. And Julie Strain gets involved in like five of them. So cool. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, uh, so Bruce Lee basically takes the bait. Like an asshole starts a fight. Uh, there's a scene right before the shit hits the fan. It's like right after he was just like, 
I did everything I wasn't supposed to do. Mm. Everything my instructor told me I should never do if I actually care about martial arts and my own dignity and being wise and responsible. So what's the next thing he does? He just tries to like walk it off and he goes to a park where he is stopped by a security guard saying, you cannot walk through this park anymore. Why? There's a sign that says, no dogs or Chinese. Mm. And then in a glorious wide shot as the guy is stopping Bruce Lee from walking through the park, a Japanese woman walks her dog through the park. Mm. And he guy's just like, what the fuck? And he was just like, Eh. No. <laughs> we just um, we just we're really racist. What do you want? And then there's this glorious mm-hmm. shot of Bruce Lee taking that sign, throwing it up in the air, and then kicking it in midair. I wish he had kicked it like into somebody. It like spun through the air and embedded in someone's chest. Would have been cool. That would have been cool. Was, there's that amazing bit, and I think it was the Green Hornet, where Bruce Lee kicked out an overhead light from a standing jump. <laughs> it's fucking amazing. And then I think Tony yeah. Jaw tried to up up. Uh, do it one better by jumping and, through like a hoop of barbed wire. No, or no, he did that already. I would think it was in the protector when he jumps up and hits a street light. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just like thirty feet off the ground. I know, I, it's ridiculous. Tony Tony so, Jaw isn't a human being. No, human beings can't do that sort of thing. No. He's he's uh, he has. DNA of various strong animals in him. He is amazing. Uh, but yeah, he goes back to the to the dojo. Uh, everyone's gotten beat up by the karate guys who are super mad at it, and they kick Bruce Lee out. And, and now he's just like living de- in a... Desecrate the... the, yeah. uh, the, 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 the memorial to yeah. the fallen teacher. And now Bruce Lee is off on his own... Uh, uh, excommunicated by everybody. Everybody hates him. He's living in a cemetery, roasting some kind of animal. It looks like a cat. I, for a second, I thought it was a dog. Like that was like a follow up to like that sign: no Chinese oh, or right. dogs. Yeah, fuck Elliot, dog. Hmm. Uh, but actually, I checked. There's a lot of debate online <laughs> as to what that animal is. The most common, the, the two most common beliefs is that it is a cat, hmm. or and I think this is more likely uh, a rabbit. Oh, but it's. No, right. it's 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 um. It, what do you call it? It's, uh, it's when like you just got a long. It has elongated bodies, just yeah. taking bites out of this thing. Like a big hair. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it could be a hair. Yeah, um, sure. But, yeah, I like to think that he's eating a rabbit rather than eating a cat. Yeah, uh, but weird scene. Regardless, uh, we get to meet his fiance at this point. In fact, it was revealed that he returned to uh, to his dojo. To well, not his dojo. His his uh, martial arts school. Uh, in order to marry his beloved, and now this whole uh, scheme has separated them, so now they're sort of meeting under mm. lamplight at night. And they're just sort of uh, bemoaning the fact that they had a future and now they don't. It's yeah, actually kind of yeah. sad. Uh, and uh, periodically, when things begin to escalate, he starts just murdering all the bad guys, and he learns this whole gangster plot and how the Japanese were plotting against the Chinese martial arts school from the beginning. Yeah, it turns out his his uh, instructor was actually poisoned mm. uh, by, like, the chefs at, the, at his uh, kung fu school. And when Bruce Lee finds out, he doesn't go, okay, well, now I'll just take you guys to the proper authorities and we'll get this all settled out. No, he beats them to death with his bare hands and hangs and then, them from a streetlight like uh, Spider-Man. There's actually several bits in this movie where Bruce Lee does things that are almost inarguably superhuman. There's a bit where he is... Uh, there's several times where he's trying to learn more information about what the, the evil uh, Japanese dojo uh, is doing. And in order to do that, he goes undercover. Once he goes undercover 
as a telephone repair guy. Mm-hmm. And he's just acting like someone who's beneath end. their scorn. So they don't even recognize that this is the guy who beat me up yesterday because they're racist. And they don't see there's a difference. But there's another time where he goes undercover as a rickshaw driver. Mm. And there's this like. <laughs> he lifts the whole rickshaw yeah, with the guy he, like, in it. turns yeah. around and lifts up the whole rickshaw like he's fucking Captain America. And it's just like, no, I don't think the laws of physics are on your side. <laughs> this is actually something that uh, director Lo Wei apparently insisted on. He wanted to have these large. Larger than life moments. He mm-hmm. also directed The Big Boss. Did you ever see The Big Boss? This is my second Bruce Lee film. I assume you've seen Enter the Dragon. I saw the Enter the Dragon. Okay. Uh, the Big Boss is, in my opinion, nowhere near as good as Fist of Fury. It's very, very simple. Bruce Lee is told by his father slash martial arts instructor uh, to never get let someone go you into a fight. Mm-hmm. So he goes to work at an ice factory and where he is horrifically abused by this incredibly corrupt system until finally at the end he has to kill everybody. Right. Um, and in this big fight, he's like fighting off a whole bunch of guys and he kicks a guy through a wall and the guy falls through a wall and he leaves a hole in the wall shaped like him. <laughs> like, like, like a Looney, like a Looney Tunes. Tunes yeah, it's yeah. totally out of place. And it's the reason, apparently, after two movies like this, Bruce Lee said he'd never work with that guy again. It was <laughs> totally the true. wrong town. Right. Totally the wrong town. And apparently he didn't like the rickshaw yeah. bit either, and he was just sort of stuck with it. Um, but yeah, so he goes undercover a bunch. The, uh, the Japanese dojo enlists some outside fighters, uh, most of whom don't really make an impression. But there's one guy who is huge and has a wonderful fro. Uh, and he's, his, he's the Russian guy, Petrov. Yeah, the character's name. Petrov, played by Robert Baker, uh, who was in real life uh, one of Bruce Lee's students. Oh, nice. So they so they work together a lot, and he has this big knockdown fight with Petrov that is kind of the progenitor of every movie you've ever seen where there was some lithe guy who's fighting some big giant guy, mm-hmm. and he, you punch him in the face, and nothing happens. And then finally, just Bruce Lee like wears him down. He like bites him on the leg. And <laughs> by the by, the end, the dude is so confused and so addled by everything like Bruce Lee is doing to him mm-hmm. that when Bruce Lee does his like arm wave, you know, sort of move, uh, he's seeing like quadruple, mm-hmm. and it's this really iconic shot. Bruce Lee fights the shit out of everybody. Bruce Lee beats the shit out of everybody, and in the end. The police come for Bruce Lee because at this point he's a mass murderer. Yeah, he's murdered like a dozen people at and this the, point. And they tell everyone at Bruce Lee's uh, martial arts uh, school, like, "Hey, listen, you gotta give, you gotta give up Bruce Lee, man. He's a maniac. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we have to shut your school down and we have to like arrest you guys for abetting it." And Bruce Lee, who's hiding upstairs, is like, "You know what?" Fuck it. This is this was a bad idea. It's a fair call. I, yeah. I screwed up too bad. And he's going to go with it. He's going to face justice. But when he goes outside, he and this is a great ending. He goes outside. <laughs> it's and the he's, Butch and Sundance ending. Yeah, it's a Butch and Sundance ending. He goes outside and he realizes that he's not being led out to like go to be, to, arrested, to be yeah. arrested and go to a courtroom and yeah maybe die like maybe get executed he killed a lot of people uh but <laughs> he, he's does, being, he does deserve it to be he, fair no no and i want well, to be executed but you know well, to be arrested about and that. taken away and, but yeah. he's being led in front of a japanese firing squad and at that point he's like okay fuck it and he like does a big jumping kick to the camera to like go out fighting and then they Free, freeze frame, frame we hear the hail of bullets yeah. and he dies really tragically for, or does Well, he? on two levels he does. On one hand, he's a guy who, he was the only person who had a very modern perspective on a problem that everyone else was just going to put up with because it was the way of things. Mm. Our people are being oppressed. Now, yes, in a very broad, cartoonish way, mm. uh, this movie was has frequently been criticized for being 
pretty mean to the Japanese, but then again, the Japanese well, pretty, were pretty mean to the Chinese, so uh, yeah, but it, it's, it doesn't it's, come from an uh, from a dishonest place. It, it, it is thematically about you know Japanese occupation and and yeah. oppression and racism. It's like it's like it's, saying the white people aren't treated well in Dolomite. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> First of all, let's never complain about how badly white people are treated in film. Exactly. And until there's a full century of no white people in film, then you can complain. Um, yeah. Uh, but the problem is this: these symbols of, of oppression are realized through a story of two rival martial arts schools. Mm-hmm. That seems a little silly to me. It's not. A, it, listen, martial arts is a way of life to a lot of people, yeah. and these sorts of conflicts were not unheard of. Mm-hmm. This isn't like there's a lot of cultural sort of differences that can kind of get in the way when you look at a lot of like kung fu movies that are not designed for Western audiences mm-hmm. that are actually built on the actual history of China, Hong Kong slash Japan, mm-hmm. uh, and the, specifically the kung fu. Uh, students therein Mm. Um, there's a lot of heavy emphasis on what it is like to be a kung fu student why because everyone in this movie is expected to fight with kung fu you know who knows kung fu people who study kung fu you know what people who study kung fu do study kung fu a lot so a lot of their stories revolve around studying kung fu Mm. it's part of it it's like saying why do all these cop movies have the police in them (laughs) <laughs> what? Every one of these cop movies is about crime. That's ridiculous. Well, it kind of follows. Hmm. But what I think is especially interesting about this is that, yeah, Bruce Lee is representing a very young, emotional, very modern uh, uh, attitude towards oppression. We're going to fight the oppression. Hmm. And it's easy to get behind him even when he does the wrong thing. But the interesting thing, one of the things I like the most about Fist of Fury is that the movie knows he's doing the wrong thing. Every sensible person is telling him about the entire time, you may have a point, but you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. But he does it anyway. And that's why he has to die at the end. Because although it may be cathartic what he's going through, you're not supposed to do that. It would be like if at the end of one of the Batman movies, everyone was like, Batman, we're really, really glad you killed the Joker, but... Um, but you did still kill a guy. You killed yeah. a lot of guys, and you may have to go to the to the gas chamber for this. Well, let's, That's the ending let, of Fist of Fury. Let's not execute anybody, but uh, yeah, at least put him in prison for a long the time. Uh, he, he has a moral... Uh, 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 there's poetic justice at the end yeah, for yeah. him. It's not, it's not like an American movie. It's not like Taken, where I killed everyone in Eastern Europe, and, but and at least I got my family back together, so we're cool, right? Yeah. No, <laughs> he's actually taking the task. And now my teenage daughter is happy, and I hooked her up with a pop star. Yeah, it's like uh, it's, it's it's like in some respects, it's almost he's an anti-hero. He is an anti-hero, but in well, some respects, it almost has a noirish quality because the only people who are good in this mm-hmm. movie are walked all over. They're walked well, all over. Everyone else is just trying to uh, use their power to get I, what they I want, think, whether it's justice um, or injustice. I think the film has maybe a little less nuance than you're saying. This is a very broad film. It's an action mm-hmm. picture. It's a revenge picture. I'm not, I'm not and, calling it nuance. I just think morally it's not clear cut. And I, I appreciate that. I, I suppose, and, I think it's, and that's by design. I suppose that's fair, but he, he is filmed in a very heroic way. Mm-hmm. Bruce Lee's handsome man. He's in great shape. He takes his shirt off. He's <laughs> in the center of the frame a lot. And yeah. what he, he's seen doing these heroic... Uh, superhuman things, and yeah, he's murdering guys, and he's taken to task for that. But that's almost feels like an afterthought. <laughs> uh, I think if he got away with it, the film would be equally satisfying. 
I, but I, I, think watched, would be, I, th- I would be less interested in it. Okay. I, I watched this film at 11.30 p.m. on a Saturday night, which is what I would be doing if the theater I work at was still open. In fact, I might be projecting this very movie on a Saturday <laughs> night uh, I, I, when it's open. I work as a projectionist at the New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles. I mentioned that a lot. And uh, that one's owned by Quentin Tarantino. He likes to show the films that influenced him. A lot of them are kung fu films. Uh, d- d- there is not a corner of this film that Tarantino has not rubbed his mitts all over. Mm. Nope. Um, and I, I think I'm, it's safe to say that I'm seeing a lot of, of my boss uh, and his work sort of come to light. Uh, the Kill Bill probably came from about five movies, and this is one of them. Definitely um, one of them, yeah. It has the exact same tone. It has the exact same pacing. It has the exact same photography. In fact, it has David of, Carradine, who actually, uh, uh, the story goes, Bruce Lee pitched the idea for Kung Fu as a television series oh, and yeah. then the producers were just like hey that's great uh, Americans, aren't, white guy Americans aren't ready for a Chinese star we're gonna cast David Carradine Bruce Lee was furious because David Carradine didn't even know Kung Fu he had to fake it the entire time yeah. and then after Bruce Lee died they brushed off a script that he had developed with uh, James Coburn and Sterling Siliphant ah. um, that was it was called Circle of Iron you ever see that no it's an interesting but not necessarily good film right. uh, about uh, a hero who is on a journey of self-discovery to become like the, the greatest fighter ever. And along the way, he meets a series of over-the-top antagonists, all of whom were originally going to be played by Bruce Lee. Because mm. it's different people. Okay. And every time he defeats one of them, he learns something more about himself until finally he reaches the end and discovers the real hero was inside you all along. Uh, but after Bruce Lee died... A, they added a bunch of weird shit that has nothing to do with it. Eli Wallach is in it for one scene. He's in the middle of a desert sitting in a cauldron full of oil because he's trying to dissolve away his own genitals because he thinks they are keeping him from wisdom. Is this a Jodorowsky movie? Has, what the hell yeah, is happening? Right? It has nothing to do with anything. It's super weird. But all of the Bruce Lee parts are played by David Carradine. Hmm. I imagine Bruce Lee would have been furious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but David Carradine was in Kill Bill yeah. and he's sort of this like... He's only one degree of Kevin Bacon away from Bruce Lee, much to Bruce Lee's no doubt chagrin. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Bruce Lee didn't make a lot of movies. Uh, he died very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made a f- uh, start in four and a half. Yeah, because uh, Game of Death was never finished. Yeah, uh, the, and Game of Death, the way that they finished it is ghoulish and weird, and I do not recommend it mm-hmm. because it's all about how uh, Bruce Lee. Faked his death. Yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah, and he like got plastic surgery and shit. Maybe. Mm, yeah, and they use actual footage of Bruce Lee's corpse. Real life footage. Yeah. It's disgusting. Just skip to the end where Bruce Lee fights Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That part's awesome. <laughs> that part is really cool. Um, Watch that. Don't see the rest of the movie. You will thank me. Justin Lin made a. a pr- Vaguely interesting film in 2007 called Finishing the Game, yeah. which was a fake documentary about uh, sort of this long fake process they used to f- complete finishing the game. I and never saw that. I always of, wanted to. It's 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 amusing. It's okay. an amusing film. Uh, there's some people in it that that you would recognize because mm-hmm. it's Justin Lin. Uh, he's still working with Sung Kang. Yeah. Uh, Bella Thorne was in it when she was a little girl. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's it's. Yeah, James Franco's because he's he'll just show up in anything, especially well, yeah. in the early 2000s. Uh, it's. It's amusing. Okay. It's not great. It's amusing. Okay. A good sort of riff on on the Bruce Lee legend. It's a neat idea. Yeah. Uh, Fist of Fury, because of where I work, mm. and I, I feel like I've seen a hundred movies exactly like this. Yeah. 
kind of over it. <laughs> um, I can I'm, see that. I'm, yeah. I'm watching Fist of Fury. It's hard Fury. to see like a movie that like spawned a whole bunch of imitators mm. for how if, awesome if it is if, all, seen, if you've seen if all, all the I've imitators. Seen is the imitators. That makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've lived within sort of the brain of Fist of Fury for so long that finally touching the brain itself feels like an anticlimax. Well, especially since Fist of Fury, like as you said, mm. it's not a complicated movie. Right. It's got an it's it's got an idea. It's got a strong protagonist. It is uh, passionate about its themes. But uh, Rick Myers, who has written extensively about it, in fact, I rewrote, I reread some of his uh, work on the subject in uh, his book *Great Martial Arts Movies*, which is a really indispensable tome about a lot of martial arts movies yeah, from good, Japan, it's China, a, elsewhere. It's a source book, yeah, yeah, a really good source book. He's written other books about it as well, but that was the one I was able to to scrounge up. Um, he he told a story about how when he was writing like pulp novels and comics in the seventies, and he was bemoaning how we don't have any superhero movies, mm. and then someone actually said like. Uh, come with me. Yeah. And then they went down to a grindhouse cinema and he introduced the, he was introduced to Kung Fu movies mm. where larger than life heroes solved problems with through super, elaborate with action superpowers, with yeah. superpowers or the equivalent of superpowers. You know, Kung Fu in these movies might as well be magic. Um, and yeah, you get to see just how broad Kung Fu movies could be. There are also some that are incredibly nuanced, but a lot of them were very broad. And a lot of them were telling big stories in huge, sweeping, legendary fashions. And Fist of Fury is an interesting example of that because in some respects it is more modern, it is more grounded, it isn't fantastical except for a few throwaway elements. It's something that you know kind of did happen. It's based mm. on some nugget of truth. And yet it feels over the top and huge because it is about mm. a certain kind of anti-heroism. With Luca... <laughs> Luca, can we can we not not? The cat over? is very playfully knocking you, things did over you again. Not like Fist uh, I, I think I like I think I like um, a, a kung fu movie over something a little bit more fantastical. Now, yes, the, we're speeding the film up. They're doing these superhuman things. Nobody can slam a fist into that many faces without injuring their hand. I understand that these things are not realistic, mm-hmm. but there is at least some truth to just a good fight because you have yeah. to you have to be really skilled. You have to rehearse a lot mm-hmm. to get that down. A good fight scene is as good as a good dance scene. Well, and, 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 and uh, the, that first big fight with mm-hmm. all of the uh, the karate students is choreographed like a dance sequence in a yeah, lot of ways, a like a Bugsy Berkeley around, musical around in a circle and mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and Luca. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of like a, a modern superhero film. They're all like special effects based, and all yeah. of the characters have these sort of magical items about them, or you know, magical superpowers about them. So, like when a really wiry guy slams his fist into you, they kind of have to say, "Well, it turns out he has radioactive spider blood, and he can send you flying across the room." In this one, I'm in the kung fu genre. I'm willing to accept the superhuman elements a little bit more because there actually is a highly trained element to what the actors are doing. Right. And Bruce Lee had a very particular idea in his head about how action choreography should Mm. be. He believed that fight sequences shouldn't last a long time because you're trying to hurt each other. Yeah. So if you succeed at all, the fight's going to be over pretty quick, which is why in a lot of Bruce Lee movies, you'll find that he doesn't spend a lot of time, except at the end, Mm. fighting one person for an extended period of time. What he does is fight a lot of people (laughs) for short periods of time Hmm. Each, so he only needs to get in like one or two punches to kill this guy, but there are still twelve others. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you expand the uh, the conflict. That's fair. Yeah, it's, yeah it, was, it was very novel, very mm-hmm. novel at the time. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I was really impressed with the fights. Um, I just, the story did not grab me one whit because I've seen it, uh, you know, a hundred times. I've, I've never really been on board with the whole idea of blood revenge as a motivator, and it's used in, like, every other action movie. Right. Because blood revenge isn't a thing. I mean, sure, surely, yeah, okay. There's, <laughs> it's been there's had. Like, there's like, yeah, it's been had. There's been gang violence and what have you, but it's not, it's not as every day as well, the usually, action genre would have you believe. It's, it's usually like, not elaborate. Like, here's, where, here's a scene where I buy blood revenge. Hmm. Romeo and Juliet. No, we had a duel. It's, oh, it's we, this like, guy killed Mercutio. I'm going like, to immediately kill him. In the heat him. of passion, I'm just I'm so mad. I'm just going to hit you with a sword because you killed my friend. Yeah, that kind yeah. of blood revenge I can get. Here's why I don't buy it. The Count of Monte Cristo. A bit elaborate, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> We're, Isn't that a bit much? I've spent 16 years in the Chateau d'If and I've changed my identity and I'm going to get this... La- look. Oh, get a hobby. I can't stay mad that long. There's actually like scientific studies that have been said that no one can feel the same emotion for mm. more than 40 minutes. You need... Your brain will take a break and switch to another emotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether you need it or whether you is want it, to or not. I it, don't buy the Count of Monte... It's fun, yeah. but I don't buy the Count of Monte Cristo. It's a, gr- a great uh, emotion. Phillips line. You have to wait five days to buy a gun. I can't stay mad that long. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Which is why Bruce Lee played a lot of young and impetuous people. He played a lot of people who who would fight. Who yeah. would fight. And that's something that I think is really interesting. The this idea that martial arts mastery doesn't necessarily immediately come part and parcel with wisdom. Hmm. Uh, Bruce Lee it's was a hothead. To, in, Bruce Lee yeah. was a hothead in real life, by all accounts. Mm. Um, there was actually like stories about the f- shooting of Fist of Fury, where there would be like local gangs saying, "Oh, you're shooting Fist of Fury, eh? Mm. Well, you're gonna have to pay us to shoot on this street." And apparently, they had to hold Bruce Lee back because <laughs> he wanted to fight him. He's like, "You bastards! I'm trying to shoot a movie here." Um, in fact, my my boss put Bruce Lee in a movie. Yeah. In, in his last movie. He he's, did. He's in there. He did. And I, I'm perfectly willing to accept... I have issues with that movie. Mm. I'm perfectly willing to accept that Bruce Lee would fight a guy on the set of one of his movies. <laughs> well, no, no, I can't comment. I, I, I will. I just, I'm willing to... That's not my problem with that scene. I have other problems with that scene, but we're getting off topic. Mm. Um, when you watch Bruce Lee's movies, you're seeing someone, like a star being born, but what's frustrating is you never see this, that star becoming fully formed. I would argue that with James Dean's three movies, you get who James Dean could have been. You see all of it. I think we were in the middle of seeing the evolution of Bruce Lee, but I don't think we ever got to see him mature and get really wise. We never got to see him go beyond this early stage, this, this sort of angry Mm. sort of filmmaking where, yeah, he was angry about a lot of things. He also spoke very wisely about a lot of things. But he told stories about young people making mistakes. Big Boss is about someone making mistakes and paying the price for it. Fist of Fury is about someone making mistakes and paying the price for it. Way of the Dragon is him starting to evolve out of that and get a little bit more elaborate and get a little bit more multicultural. It all takes place in Italy. And at the end, he fights Chuck Norris in the Coliseum. Mm. It's awesome. Um, Enter the Dragon was not Bruce Lee's film. But Bruce Lee understood how important that was to his career, and he took that movie really, really seriously. And for the most part, I think Enter the Dragon really, really works. Mm. Enter the Dragon was a lot of Westerners' introduction to Bruce Lee. It's a great introduction. Mm. I think a lot of that movie really, really works, but we just never got to see him take this awesome beginning Mm. and some of these rocky starts and become 
I think the real legend he could have been, and that's one of the reasons why mm-hmm. his early death is doubly sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, a lot of people hold hold him up just for what he already accomplished in those few films he was in, uh, because he was strong, mm-hmm. handsome. Uh, Asian movie star, which was uncommon in the 70s. In, 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 America, in America, that yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, he was a crossover uh, star, and, yeah. and even though there was this big wave of um, Bruce exploitation films... Bruce Lai, Bruce Lay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. people had were gave themselves similar like actor names who then did martial arts movies, and even though martial arts movies were somewhat popular, it wasn't until Jackie Chan in the 90s that a Chinese action star would have crossover success in America consistently. Yeah. yeah. So the, it, it set it was, that it all, back all, quite a bit. All about Rumble in the Bronx. Uh, yeah. that, that was the sort of the big breakthrough. It was, it, and, it, and, yeah. and thank God. It's not the movie I would have chosen to be in the breakthrough, but it was, and it's a fun movie. I, I, I love Rumble in the Bronx. It's, I think it's it, fantastic. I don't think it's in his top five or even ten movies, but it's a lot of fun, and yeah. it did the job, and isn't that cool? But yeah, there was this like 20-year period where kung fu movies were still being made and were still huge hits in China mm-hmm. and internationally, and some of them would come out over here and do okay, but Enter the Dragon was this huge mainstream blockbuster, and we just, when Bruce Lee left us, there was no like big superstar with enough charisma like crossover mm-hmm. amongst other cultures to, that was to keep be, that going. going to become as big as he was. Yeah. Uh, but uh, sometime in the 90s, his legend sort of resurged, probably around the time... Uh, Brandon Lee died. Uh, Brandon Lee died. Oh, yeah. Brandon Lee died. Um, Bruce Lee's son, Brandon Lee, made a few action yeah. movies. Some of them are pretty good. Showdown a Little Tokyo is a, a lot. A lot of the 70s yeah. stuff and started to show up in the directors of... Uh, Gen X directors were bringing a lot of that 70s mm-hmm. exploitation vibe back, and not just Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Some uh, Chinese directors are working uh, yeah. in America, people like John Woo, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, and it all started, and you know, thanks to Rumble in the Bronx, uh, the legend of Bruce Lee, uh, which was all, had always been sort of like percolating in the background, finally boiled over. And mm. uh, there was a period in the '90s when you couldn't go into a certain kind of man's dorm room and not see a Bruce Lee poster. Uh, which I'm fine with. Of him, yeah, the, I mean, the, granted, the he was dragon poster, he was popular but, and he was selling posters even before that, mm. but he had a he had a resurgence in the '90s. Yeah, and it, yeah. I don't think he's ever completely gone away since. And good, he should live. Well, forever. I was going to say, I, I is is he still holding at that level? Because you know, I'm an old man now. I don't have my finger on the pulse anymore. Right. Uh, you shouldn't listen to me. I don't know what's going I on. Think uh, but... I think he's an icon, whether or not mm. he's... A, it's like James Dean. Not okay. everyone's necessarily watching Rebel Without a Cause or East of Eden all the time, but everyone knows James Dean and what he represents. Okay. Everyone could recognize James so I'm, Dean. I'm wondering how watched his movies are, you know, by the college set. Uh, not days. all of them are as watched. Like, The Big Boss? I don't think it's a good movie. I think mm-hmm. it's an impassioned movie. I see why it was a hit at the time. But I think he only made like three legitimately good movies in his hmm. career. And it was Fist of Fury, Enter the Dragon, and Way of the Dragon. Hmm. Um, but in any case, l- those movies are pretty widely available. Uh, Criterion is putting out later this year a Bruce Lee Blu-ray boxed set, which I'm sure will be fantastic. Hmm. Um, uh, Shout Factory put out some Bruce Lee DVDs not that long ago. Those are actually good sets. Hmm. Uh, they're they're pretty uh, pretty crisp. Uh, they they don't have necessarily the uh, bad American dubs. Some of them are worse than others, but none of them are great. Um, or at least I think you have the option of mm. listening to the Chinese audio track. Um, but yeah, if you haven't seen Fist of Fury, I do recommend it. Whitney, I guess not so much. 
I, I understand I, if you don't, I don't like it. It's fine. I just, it, I'm a fan. It's it's not that I dislike it. It's just that it it did, it barely registered uh, okay. for me just because I've seen so many of these things like it on Saturday night. It's I felt like I was at work. I felt like I was just All sort right. of doing my job, and I don't really acknowledge that's those pretty, films. That's pretty distinct to you it's, and it's, your experience. Yeah, yeah no. And, well, I have to say that that's yeah. this this is this is why something like Fist of Fury, which I can recognize as an impeccably choreographed movie, mm. uh, Bruce Lee is doing wonderful, amazing things. It's pretty awesome to behold. But I'm not feeling much of anything <laughs> while I'm watching it because I, I feel like I've seen this a hundred times. Well, that's um, fair. So yeah, I, I admit that the only reason I'm not getting in on a Fist of Fury is because I am personally jaded, yeah. uh, and uh, I, I wish I weren't. I wish I was mm. able to sort of see this with a, a little bit of a fresh eye. Maybe if the circumstances under which I watched this particular film were a little different, it would be it would be different. But this is not a, a film for Whitney Seibold. Fair enough. <laughs> you know what else might not be a I, film for Whitney Seibold? Mm. Our next streaming club pick. Oh, well, this isn't a film for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so next week on the canceled... T- uh, canceled. Next week on the Critically Acclaimed Critical Streaming Club. Club. I'm leaving it in. Right. I'm tired. Uh, next week on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, uh, we asked our Patreon subscribers, uh, as we do every week, to pick a film. And we decided to pick westerns that are currently available on Amazon Prime. Whitney isn't a particularly like well-versed in, in mm-hmm. westerns. Uh, I've seen a lot of westerns, but I still have a lot of really big gaps. Yeah. So we were able to put together a pretty interesting uh, list of films for you to pick from, including, I'm not going to tell you who has seen what, but the, the Magnificent Seven was on there, the original film. Mm-hmm. It was a remake, but you know what I mean. Uh, the uh, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. That was on that list as well. Johnny Guitar with Joan Crawford. Oh, yeah. Which is considered a classic of the genre as well. But the film our patrons picked, because, because they're interesting people. Our patrons are interesting people who, do they like us or not? I don't know. I don't know. But they decided... Why did you pick this? They decided Why did you pick this? They decided it's to the pick joke a film. entry. <laughs> yeah, it was the one we thought they wouldn't go for. Uh. Uh, they picked Paint Your Wagon, a Western musical comedy starring Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood. When I put that on the poll, there were people who commented saying, I thought that was just a joke on The Simpsons. <laughs> no, that's I, a real film. I didn't realize that was a real movie. <laughs> so we have to watch that this week. I have actually never seen it, and mm. I am fascinated. So no. let's do it. Let, let's delve into Paint Your Wagon. <laughs> You know what? We've had a lot. <laughs> hold on, hold on. You know what? We've had a lot of Stone Cold classics in a row okay. here in the streaming club. Okay, we had Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which you know in some respects has aged weirdly, but it's mm-hmm. a significant film with great performances. Yeah. Uh, we had Moonstruck, which is one of the great romantic comedies of the mm-hmm. 1980s, we and, it's, had, and it's quite good. Yeah, yeah it's, mm-hmm. it's really, really good. We had uh, what we have on Criterion. Um, mm-hmm. We just did it. On Criterion. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah, I was just, I'm asking was you just, a question. <laughs> I was just sort of drawing a blank. I thought you were asking yeah. uh, rhetorically. No. No, oh, uh, st- um, High and Low. High, we did High and Low. We did yeah, High and Low. And then we did the Bruce Lee classic Fist of mm. Fury. We're due <laughs> for a turkey. I suppose so. So let's watch a turkey. And who knows? Maybe we'll like it. It's entirely possible. Why not? We're going to give it a fair entirely shake. Possible Maybe it's fun. Painter Wagon, however, is quite notorious is. Uh, for, for being as, as bad and as overwrought as it is. Well, I can't wait. And also next week, we'll be reviewing a whole bunch of more new movies on streaming because, again, the theaters are shut down. We're going to be reviewing films like The Willoughby's. 
a new animated film. Uh, mm. The Plagues of Breslov, which is a new serial killer film. Uh, a documentary called Circus of Books, which is about a pornographic bookstore that's in our neighborhood. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I've been there too. It's fun. Uh, and uh, and also a new horror film on Shutter called 0.0 Megahertz. So we'll be talking about those and maybe others besides. We haven't decided yet. Um, and I'll, I'll be on Critically Acclaimed next week. You can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I myself am at William Bibiani. I myself am at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we invite you to subscribe to our Critically Acclaimed channel. That part is free wherever fine podcasts are podcasted. Uh, however, if you want more stuff, tons of exclusive content, head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, there you will find stuff like Out of Gas, the Firefly podcast. We're reviewing every single episode of Firefly. All our yesterdays, we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in production order. Uh, we have Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We have Not on Disney Plus, where we're reviewing movies that Disney is trying to sweep under the rug. We have commentary tracks and more stuff besides. You get to vote for future episodes. Ton of cool stuff. We'd love to have you if you can afford it. If not, well, then don't. <laughs> We're not asking you to go into hawk for us. It's just yeah, if you can so, afford to help us out, we that we sure would appreciate it. And if you can't, okay, yeah. good. Use the money as as needed. Yeah, buy buy groceries, buy Please. essential services. Yeah. Uh, we're we're happy to provide the content. Should you want it, uh, yeah. we're here to provide you with as much uh, free content as we can. Yeah, uh, if, and as if much bonus is, content if you can afford it. If if you do feel like contributing, always leave, go to iTunes, leave us a review. That always like bumps us up on all of the all of the lists therein. And if you see someone mm. asking, hey, do we know any good podcasts? Mm. You could put our podcast down if you mm-hmm. like it. If you don't, I'm surprised you made it this far. But you know, you could. Yeah, if, if you're on tw- if you're on Twitter and Damien Chazelle says, "Hey, what's a good film podcast?" Hey, Damien Chazelle. Why Damien Chazelle? I don't know. A celebrity you might okay. ask. Anyway, uh, so that's it for critically acclaimed this week. Thank you everybody for listening. We hope you're staying safe and sane. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I wanna go to the midnight show. I'm sorry. What?